Um, yeah, I'm just going to... Are we going to dive straight into this? I think we need to dive straight into um, everything. I'm going uh, to skip the introductions uh, yeah. because you didn't tell me that Michael Bay was a fucking murderer. I, how you, how no. have you not mentioned this to me? It must have slipped my mind. Unfortunately, it's not in my mind to slip. So, Do you, so you don't know about him being like an actual fucking murderer. <laughs> no, I didn't know about him being a fucking murderer. All, all the years, all the years we've watched his films. Um, exactly. Watched, like The Rock and Con Air and Bad yeah. Boys, and watched yeah, them and, with and, pure adoration for the cinematic craft. Yes. Honestly, I feel like I feel like children of the 70s did when they found out about jimmy savile i thought i've enjoyed all of these films and he's a fucking dirty proven murderer and i no one's ever told me this no it's, it feels like it would be bigger news if he were a murderer but do go on well i'm gonna talk to you about that no no if he was he's a fucking dirty murderer as far as i'm concerned mate <laughs> um and there's no way out of it well I, I, <laughs> evidence I said, be right. damned apparently uh yeah they when he was filmed do you know what i might tear up as i say this i don't think i've ever cried on camera on well on microphone before but this could be the time even the fucking murderer just thinking about him just thinking about what he's got away with it's disgusting um he he sorry let me just compose yourself i'm not gonna write a song rupert um Apparently, and I'm sorry, if, <coughs> here they come. <laughs> if anyone's uh, gets a bit, like we don't want to start off on a serious note, but um, Michael Bay, a fucking murderer. When uh, when he was filming Nine Underground, was it called or Six Underground? Six Underground, I think. Um, Twenty eighteen, apparently. Nine Underground. <laughs> apparently, yeah. Uh, during one of the explosive stunts, of which there are many, because it's a Michael Bay film, a Michael Murderer Bay film, um, a pigeon was killed. Whoa. Well, allegedly. <laughs> uh, but I've, I think, I've, you know, a lot of people get their news from CNN or Fox or the New York Times. I go straight to the heart of the matter, where only the truth uh, can be discovered. I was shown it on a random Instagram story uh, with bad Photoshop. Sponsored by PETA. So apparently, yeah, apparently he's an, an actual proven murderer. So I'm not sure if I can wow. watch any more of his films. I'm never, I'll tell you what, on the strength of even the allegedly, I'm never watching Pain Again again. <sighs> Promise you that. That's, that is a sacrifice. To be honest, I don't feel like I'm ever going to look at another moving image again after that. Yeah, apparently he Sick. says that, um, you know, quote, unquote, um, this is all alleged. And I'm a known animal lover and activist, <laughs> likely, mate. That's probably what Ted Bundy said as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's it. No more Michael Bay films from my side of things. Aside from that, mm. how, how have you been? All good for you? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry you had to find out that news, really. I mean, that must have been a shock to you. That's you why it's what? taken us so long to get around to the next episode, no? <laughs> I've been just, reeling. I've just been reeling. Well, I, you know, when I read it at like two in the morning in bed, I sat up so quickly that I actually broke my own back. Luckily, my roommate is Tom Conti. And he just gave me a quick 
boot with one of his size sevens and i was like oh cheers tom back to being shocked at his michael murderer mcbay um yeah so no, I'm, yeah I, I do apologize for there being there being a, a gap between the last one and this one we've still yet to do the state of play but another there's a few things i've noticed right over the last few weeks while we've been um while we've been watching these different films and and uh crafting our reviews word for word to read off a set script um <laughs> I was listening to a, a certain actor being interviewed by Mark Maron. Okay. And I tell you what, actually, <clears throat> I'm not going to, you know, the Mark Maron, how the, how the whole thing works, right? Yes, it's him in, in his, in his garage with a, with a dude or woman and dudette. And I'm going to tell you what this person sounded like for the duration of the interview, not for a few seconds, for the whole interview. And you have to guess which actor this was, right? Okay. He sounded like he was in a schoolroom. Um, you know, like kids do when they're bored, where they kind of cross cross their hands and they put them on the desk and they put their chin flat on their hands on the desk. Do you know what I mean? Yes, as if they, yeah. as it, right. <laughs> yeah. And he did the whole interview as if he was in that position and it didn't shift. And I thought, Christ, you know what? I, I and we both really rate this person as an actor, but I just thought, and his answers as well, it was yeah sure yeah and uh yeah of course and uh and i thought my god that's your speaking voice if i was married to you i'd fall asleep during sex <laughs> but what so who which act did you think it was like it, he was great and he seemed really amiable and really lovely and really family driven he's incredibly talented but i just thought my god your voice needs to be on relaxation tapes well from the, your impression it sounded like matthew mcconaughey Oh no, no, no! Yeah, I, I wasn't doing a particular impression. I was just trying to get the the sort of volume right more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So, uh, it was Ben Foster. Ah, uh, yeah, that was one of the recent ones, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And and, he, and I thought, are you, have you got your head on a desk, disinterested talking? And like it was fine. He's a lovely bloke, right? The turn off because it was making me tired. I was just listening to him talk. I just thought, wow. <laughs> Um, that's so that's so odd did, did it actually sound like he was sort of leaning on his hand because i noticed that in radio interviews i've heard that before you can always me, hear where someone just puts their head on their hand and it's almost like obscures their mouth yeah i'll see if i can do it i've moved my microphone let me see if i can do it here i can't like lie down flat recreating but it's, it, ben Foster, re, re, recreating ben christ that's an academy award winning drama if i ever heard of it so it, it was like yeah so uh, yeah that's kind of uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost like he's like leaning it's yeah, like under uh, the chin isn't it yeah and and, yeah. and i just thought but then like thought, he's strangling himself as he speaks <laughs> you can't be doing that obviously like if so you like can you sit up there but it was really bizarre but it was really relaxing and he yeah. says he says his s's like leonardo dicaprio does where it's like a like i can't even do it it's like a ass sure you know it like really emphasizes yeah. the s kind of like um damien um not damien rice uh james blunt there's a certain way he says sure which is really accentuated which again i yeah. find relaxing but for an interview of like an hour long it's like ben because he was in one of your films of the week a couple of years ago now wasn't it was it leave no trace yeah that was a good film i was heavy going um matthew mcconaughey of course occasionally whistles his s's which is fantastic so. Yeah, that is good stuff. That is, um, I, I do like it when that. That's great material, which 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 leads me, um, yeah. When they say Matthew, can you say sixteen sausages sizzling in a pan? And he goes, Yeah, of course. 
<laughs> and they're like, oh, that's beautiful. It did sound like you were a very distant ship folk on, though. Um, another thing I've noticed is, and I was I've I was bought a coloring book um from Faye for my birthday, um, and just just coloring this person in over and over again. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> And um, I thought, why haven't we mentioned this person in our Arkins bar? Ooh. And it's Jeff. It's Jeff Goldblum. Maybe he's just too obvious. Well, do you think? Well, like he's like too George Clooney-ish. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, he's like just. I guess he would. He'd be. He would be in there already. He's the guy who sold us the bar, so we can kind of create it from scratch, sort of thing. And he's like, well, if you don't mind, I'll be hanging around in here. It's like, yeah, sure, Jeff. You, you just yeah. pull up a beer, mate. And then just say, what, hanging around in there and kissing us? Kissing oh. men like us. <laughs> <laughs> kissing people that look surprisingly like me. And he's like, no, just hanging around, I think. Um, yeah. And the last thing I've got, actually, just uh, this is, I had a few things that have been on my mind. This is something you've you've also been privy to. Um, and this was in, in one of our groups of friends. Someone posted um, an AI suggested continuation of the Fast and Furious franchise. And it's okay. something that really, really tickled me. So, of course, they're up to Fast and Furious 9. What was that even called? Was it like Fast 9 or something like that? It can't or, have been as dull as that. I mean, they, mm, they haven't F, actually had F9. very. Yeah, it's going to be F9. And, and well, of course, Fast and Furious 8 was like for eight of the Furious or some shit like that. <sighs> they were struggling. Um, it was always going to happen. Um, but yeah, so I'm just going to read out these 15. And it's the it's the suggest AI suggested titles for the next 15 <laughs> Fast and Furious films. So it's Fast 10, Ludicrous Speed. Fast, Faster. Maximum acceleration, fastest, breakneck pace, fast and furiouser. So now they're inventing words. Uncontrollable rage, fastest fast. What's your, that sounds like a kid would say it like a, a running event. Like, oh, what's your fastest fast, mate? Um, <laughs> in Wales, obviously. Um, fastest fast, speed of lightning, which is quick, by the way. You can Google that. Yeah, I'm not sure even their cars would go that fast. And then fastest to furious hyphen er. So f- they've had furious, <laughs> and now they're saying furious er. Road rage explosion. So they bring it. So Michael Bay's directed that one. And then furious faster accelerated annihilation, which, if anything, just seems like like something that like Greenpeace would support. Maybe like, it sounds like a Greenpeace warning film. Um, <clears throat> the fast, the faster, and the furiousest. Again, like <laughs> really, like AI is like creating words. Pedal to the metal mayhem, and then number nine is fastest and furious est. Again, hyphenated, <laughs> boundless speed, boundless fury. Like the faster you are, the angrier you are. Which is why Linford Christie was always bloody. He was spitting razors, wasn't he, that man? Um, fastest versus furious, sir. Um, the ultimate speed slash fury showdown. Turbo fast slash. Versus... Hang on, there's a title <laughs> with a slash in it. My God, you yeah, don't well, actually, Face if, off if, is the last one I saw. Bloody if hell. I read out all of this sort of syntax and grammar, it's fastest versus furious here, colon the ultimate speed slash fury showdown. Uh, and then number eleven is turbo fast versus mega furious, which just sounds like a really depressing porno. 
Turbo Fast versus Mega Furious Thrash of the Titans. So now they're back to like nice, nice. it's like a play, yeah, like a pun. Um, Hyper Fast Annihilator Nine Thousand versus me. That sounds like a Street Fighter sequel. Think <laughs> why I like it. It's always in the thousands as well. It's not one or two. Hyper Fast Annihilator Nine Thousand versus Furious Fury Max colon Clash of the Ultimate Speed slash Rage Machines. Oh my God, they're just being directed by Roger Corman at this point, aren't they? <laughs> well, I was. I thought that maybe that that one could possibly star Al Cliver. Oh, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is actually just invented words. Fastestest versus furious super accelerated ultra ro- rage destruction. Bloody hell! Oh oh, that's a beauty. And then the, the final two, ultra fast mega fury seven billion. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to know how the the this what's it called the algorithm went from annihilator nine thousand. To Fury Seven Billion, they're such bizarre numbers. <laughs> Ultra fast Mega Fury Seven Billion, maximum speed domination, and then of course the final so far in the um, parallel universe, uh, Fast and Furious films, Super Fast Hyper Furious Z colon Breakneck Speed Annihilation Factor Infinity. <laughs> well, it's gone know. beyond seven billion and now it's just factor infinity that is literally the that final one though is the equivalent of the kind of thing you'd pick up in a sh- shop on vhs in the 90s and go yes yes and you'd run <laughs> home and put it on and then you'd go on IMDb and just, like oh, hang on the budget for this film is 15 grand or it could be the title of a jrpg of course that's the other possibility yeah not enough colons and semicolons in there really though um of course, what would happen after that is they'd have to reboot it and they'd just call it The Fast and the Furious again. And they'd just start from the beginning. Uh, yeah. It would be interesting to put the actual first Fast and the Furious into an internet algorithm and say, what would the first nine films that it comes out with be? And I can see how close it is to the original. But, um, yeah, amazing. And that leads us quite nicely into the um, into the Arkansas, which was Stephen Lang to Sean Harris. Yes. Um, which was that chosen by you or Laszlo? I think um, maybe it was a comedy. I can't remember to be honest. Sure. I just it happened, we, and we, I thought it was going to be easier than it was. Oh really? Because do you want to do yours first? I've got I've got a few responses from the from the listeners. Yeah. Um. So my one is uh, Sean Harris is in Rogue Nation with Alec Baldwin, who's in The Getaway with James Woods. Who's in? I think he's in the hard way with Stephen Lang. You think he is in the hard way with Stephen Lang? That's one I, I watched. Uh, that was at well, actually, yeah. weird. Oh, I knew James was, Woods, wasn't it? I think I, it was Stephen Lang wasn't hundred percent on, but I remember him being a bad guy or something. Yeah, he's so called like the, par- the party crasher. I think he, he's the main killer. He's really good in it as well. He's a proper insane. Because uh, he's an amazing actor. It's, it's, it's a broad career he's had as well. He's, he's yeah, he's a chameleon that man. Love him. Um, yeah, because he it's weird how he you see him in some films and he's like a lawyer and then he's a absolutely believable serial killer and then he's kind of a hero and he's and then in other ones he's yeah it's just he is a, a chameleon with it all. He's yeah, just and then s- like in yeah. in Manhunter he's just like a sleazy nothing like pissing his pants kind of guy and then oh. And then you look at something like, yeah, like Don't Breathe, and it's just a completely different, just embodiment. Brilliant. He's an actor, like, uh, he's kind of like, um, 
I, 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 he's what I wish Michael Wincott was. Like when I watch Michael Wincott in a film, I think oh, I wish there were loads and loads of Michael Wincott films, and there just there just isn't. Um, but he, when you if you got into Stephen Lang, for example, that'd be a good question actually to the viewers and you for maybe next time. Um, if you email us at the men who talk at outlook.com actors that you got into quite late on and then realized how brilliant they were and then sort of just dived into their or dove into their back catalogue. Yes. Cause I can imagine like Stephen Lang and Don't Breathe was that for a few people where they thought yeah. actually, wow, he has got this rich history to, to dive into and take from, which is quite nice. I think, yeah. What was it? <clears throat> I do think that Stephen Lang is someone it kind of happened to me. Cause I, I recognized he was like really good in Manhunter. And I love that movie. But I didn't really notice him until anything else. And then I watched Avatar in 2009 and thought he was just totally rad in that. Easily the best thing in it. So then I went back and I watch anything with him in it now. I mean, he has been in a lot of trash as well, but I don't care. He elevates things. And then, of course, there was the whole thing about, you know, um, Gettysburg and Gods and Generals. The fact that he played two different characters in both films in the sequels because he was that good. They said, get him back. I don't care who he plays. <laughs> get him back. It completely <laughs> confused the audience. But hey. Yeah. Get get him back. I want him to star as the title character in the colour purple. <laughs> um so um the audience responses, so this is from our yes. very own Laszlo. Hello, darling. I was going to submit a fairly boring Avatar-related three-stepper when suddenly thought of an alternative that included two classic trash 90s action films. So Stephen Lang. Get away in the hard way was in the hard way with james woods who was in the getaway with alec baldwin who was in mission impossible fallout with sean harris that's better uh max said stephen lang is in avatar with sigourney uh i'm assuming he means weaver who's in paul with simon pegg who's in mission impossible seven or something with sean harris <laughs> and i like this it reminds me of the avengers thing it, it, like where people are really dismissive of the actual like canonical <laughs> yeah. whichever it's one, like it's one of them in it and then utah smith said i kept ending up back at stephen lang i was stuck in a kurt russell michelle rodriguez loop i couldn't escape but <laughs> sean harris slash tom cruise was with tom cruise in mission impossible 48 or 54 <laughs> Tom Cruise was with Kurt Russell in Vanilla Sky, and Kurt Russell was with Stephen Lang in Tombstone, uh, yes. which he was keen to point out, point out starred a little cameo from a surprisingly overweight Billy Bob Thornton at the start. Right. So I think they're all three-steppers. Yeah, I think it was... It's the kind of one where you're thinking you're almost at two steps, but it's just not happening. You can't shave that one no, off. No, you just... No. It'd be fine. It'd be funny one day if we could get um, if we could just name two actors and try to link them, but get hold of the two actors and say, can you find a link between your own filmographies? Um, oh my God, that'd be incredible. I'm not sure of our reach. Uh, I mean, I... <laughs> yeah, I'm to get Todd Carty on the phone. <laughs> um, yeah. So and that, then it'd be an inevitable link to Krull. So there you go. It's like, well, I was in Krull. Yeah. That... <laughs> Oh, yeah, and then I was in Heartbeat, and I said, no, 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 that, that's the Savalas. Yeah, kind of the Savalas. So basically, your entire EastEnders career is out. By the way, uh, as I learned today, in for every two hours of American TV, there are thirty-six minutes of adverts, and I, I don't know, I, 
I, I know that's where the money comes from, but I, I'm just, I don't know. I feel like I've saved myself so many months, actual months of time mm-hmm. in not watching TV shows, regardless of where my enjoyment with them would have stood. Um, and I would have made sure it was low. <laughs> Let me tell you that. I made sure I didn't like anything. You don't, that's need, I said. you don't need TV if you're going to be trawling Prime, trawling the yeah. outer reaches of Prime for that horror movie you might have missed. <laughs> and believe me, Trawling Prime is my middle name for this episode because I've really I've really embraced what really drives me, what what makes my eyes roll back in my head and slightly levitate. Uh, I have watched some absolute patsy shash and I cannot wait to talk about it. <laughs> what, what do you want to do about I know there's one film we've both seen, Glass Onion. Do you want to yeah. kick off with it? We might as well click off with yeah. Glass Onion. Okay. Or to give it its full title, Glass Onion, colon, A Knives Out Story. I think or is it a knives out mystery knives out mystery okay <clears throat> yeah so this is the sequel to knives out obviously um and in this one edward norton plays this tech billionaire who invites a bunch of his irritating self-absorbed semi-celebrity friends to this island retreat of his to play a murder mystery game Benoit Blanc played by Daniel Craig of course is not invited but he still finds his way there through a series of convoluted events um so of course it it's not just a game in the end a real murder will occur and Blanc must deduce who did it and why uh so that's pretty much the point you can't really say much else other than otherwise you can't spoil it I suppose uh so uh, what did you think of this I don't think I liked it as much as the first film but I still quite liked it so that's pretty much my summary of my opinion well thanks for that Barry Norman <laughs> yeah. uh, um I I I I think I enjoyed them on a par because mm. I think when I went first went into a knives out the, the first one I had like zero expectations for it um and I and I really enjoyed the kind of twists and turns and the reveals and and I I realized how much I just enjoy a good murder mystery. Mm-hmm. I would say the main and the thing is the thing I'll have to wait twenty years unfortunately to tell everyone what I really thought about this because I don't want to spoil it. But what, with the first one, all I would say is with the, with the first one in terms of the plot, I enjoyed trying to solve it as it was happening and failing. Mm. But like trying to solve it, trying to solve it, and then and then kind of failing, and then really feeling how it all came together is like a real. One of our friends, uh, mutual friends, Alex, watched this, and he said he finds the Knives Out films festive, in that they okay. it's like that sense of just like you sit down, you have a couple of drinks when you're watching it, and it's just good, old fashioned. It's a fun romp, and it's just yeah. a feel good romp. And when I watched Knives Out the original, um. I loved seeing like Don Johnson. I loved just seeing the actors in it back together. Yeah. I loved how well written it was and how tight it was. And any film like you with New York, any any sort of any film set in like a really shitty, pissy New York, you're all over. And films filmed in a single evening. When I when it's set in a single location, I think oh this this it gets a little kick up the ass from me if you know what I mean. Yeah, it was all in the house. The thing I would say is with Glass Onion, the sequel about. I would say 20 to 30 minutes in, mm. I left my mind at the door and thought, I'm not here to to solve this. I'm here to just enjoy it. 
Yeah. I, I, I thought, yeah, I don't feel like I'm going to be able to. I, I, I think this is going to be a series of reveals that is going to come together in like a, a completely kind of like um like House of Cards fashion. Just let and, it happen. And, and it did. And I just let it happen. And I, of the moment my brain switched into that gear, I had an absolute whale of a time with it. Well, I, that, yeah. I, I enjoy, I enjoyed it so much. Mm. Faye, Faye fell asleep while we were watching it, okay. and I thought I, I could watch this the last 40 minutes this tomorrow, but I was enjoying it so much I couldn't. And my eyes were burning from staring at the screen and enjoying it so much that I knew I should have taken my contact lens up, put my glasses in, but I, I didn't want to break the flow. And I sat there blinking with like really sore burning <laughs> eyes for like 20 minutes. And it wasn't like um, laughing out loud at it. It was just that I would I would use the word rollicking as, as yeah. like I just sat there and thought I'm having a bloody good time watching this. And I, I don't often f- get that sense from a movie, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that you know you didn't it wasn't it's not something where you're trying to work it out as it goes along you just kind of like let it happen and that's kind of chimes with what uh what's his name ryan johnson yes yeah 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 Yeah. i don't know why that sounds wrong but anyway ryan johnson yes the guy from the 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 guy from the beach boys yeah that's the one uh because he was on mark maron recently and he was talking about this obviously and he was saying like that's something that he realized about like murder mysteries and stuff is that actually the trick isn't to it it's like it's not to give people something where they can try and work it out but to give something give them something so enjoyable that they can relax let it happen safe in the knowledge that they'll be satisfied when it works itself out if you see what i mean so there's a slight difference there it's like then because then you're not in like competition with the audience which i think works well like i wouldn't because you know it's not going to be what you expect obviously and there's quite a funny joke quite near the start where <laughs> where Benoit Blanc just instantly works out like the murder mystery kind of game he just instantly solves it and it's like really disappointing for Ed, Ed Norton so I kind of like that scene I did think it was good I think it was uh intelligent it's like an intelligent mid-budget character driven and piece of entertainment and i think in a way because if you think about like superhero films getting more and more kind of bloated uh and then at the other end of the scale you've got sort of oscar bait dramas which just seem to be getting even more distant from audiences altogether i kind of feel like this is the middle ground and it's really the future of cinema perhaps because it's like you can make these movies fairly cheap and they're well written enough and they got enough star watches that they're always going to find an audience. So um, it's a bit more cynical, I'd say, than the first film. I, I got the sense that he was Ed Norton's character seems to be like a like kind of Elon Musk type billionaire. That's what I seem to be. Elon Musk, like you know, with his celeb friends, sycophantic celebrity friends. I mean, as an attack on Elon Musk, it probably isn't going to work because. I think Elon Musk loves playing the bad guy, so probably play right into his hands, but it's quite funny. And I suppose the first film always, for all the cynicism in the first film, it always had that kind of the moral purity of Anna de Armas's character. And you don't really have that in this one because it's like everyone's a bit Everyone's shady, a ha- right? like a hanger on to yeah. 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 Uh but yeah, I yeah, I liked it. I just I loved the first film, but I I didn't love this. I liked it a lot. 
as uh, Jim Carrey would say. Um, in character. Um, yeah, I, I, the, my favorite part of it, I, I can't really say, um, <laughs> but because yeah. I'd, I'd love to, but I, I can't um, because it would just kind of give it away. Um, yeah, I, I, you, you saying that the um, the Edward Norton character being a sort of um, Elon Musk pastiche, yeah. it, 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 I felt like it was done in the right way with this. It was kind of it fit in in world. Whereas yeah. when I watched something like Don't, was it called Don't Look Up? Oh with, God, yeah, yeah. But really Whereas, heavy-handed satire. Yeah. yeah, with Donald, and I just thought this is just like Donald Trump was such a fucking asshole that this, like, I don't, I'm not finding this funny because it's just he was much more of an asshole than this. Oh thing yeah, ever make him out to be. Well, it exactly, work. It's, it's low-hanging fruit, isn't it? I mean, it's just yeah. like really you're gonna take this out Donald Trump. I mean, it's it's, it's like so low effort, isn't it? But I suppose yeah. Elon Musk is a bit different because there's at least a bit of ambiguity there. But it's like hitting a stone with a toffee hammer and laughing at it for being thick. <laughs> when if someone watched you doing that, they would think, I don't think that boy <laughs> A has many toys, B has much of an imagination. And C has many teeth. Yeah, so <laughs> And the ones he has are in a jar in his pocket. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah. How do we get onto that? Yes, Glass Onion, good film. I suppose most people would have already made the decision about whether to watch that or not already. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you should. I, I really think everyone should. I th- it's on Netflix, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, I liked it, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad we both liked it. Me more than you, but yeah. I just think that there's something... It's such a traditional genre. And, it, and it, it's not... The ending isn't like, you know, some old bloody stage play where the camera moves slightly and then they say, hang on, what's that? That's a knife with blood on it. Oh, that proves... And you're like, oh, hang on. Yeah. That's, just been, that's just been held from me, this whole film. Um, it doesn't feel like that. It's just a, no. a, like a, a web of deceit, which is which is brilliant. Well, um, it's a, yeah, these are murder mysteries, like classic I'd be genre so piece, happy because it can be one every couple of years. I'd be so happy Absolutely fine. That's... Absolutely fine. Because, you know, they can't be that difficult. Really, it's like a chamber piece, isn't it? What they call a chamber piece, where it's like basically a load of people a load of cool actors in a room really in it and with a good script and that's all you need uh, and it's one of the few genres where exposition is kind of like not just acceptable but actually encouraged because you kind of need that stuff i'm from um a small welsh mining town called kilvanith and there a chamber piece is a song you write in a toilet so yeah. what you just said goes against my my, oh, okay. my moral code. Um, I yeah, I, I just wanted to quickly gla- gloss over. Um, your son is hip deep into Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Yes. Uh, and and I watched Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs one. I say watched it; it was on in the background. But I sat down and watched Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs two. And I just want to say that it is for people out there with kids who haven't come across the year. It it is it's very fun. Um, and I think so the sequel good. eclipses the original because it's just the, there are so many kind of monsters in it. And, and it just reminds me I'm, I'm a sucker for a monster film. And yeah. it's just coming across these, you know, the film, the way it goes, just introducing all these crazy sort of creations. And it's um, it doesn't get too sentimental, uh, which is something yeah. I kind of wait for the film. I wait for it to happen. Yeah, um, it finds a nice balance. It finds a wholesome balance, I'd say. It's a yeah. wholesome movie, but without being sentimental. I know what you mean. It's almost like a, it's essentially like the lost world or something, isn't it? Uh, or I suppose King Kong, where it's like visiting this weird island with all these strange creatures. But the creatures are made out of like taco shells and 
cheeseburgers, which is quite amazing. Oh, and the, some of them are really creepy as well. Like the, the spider burger monster, <laughs> the spider burger, and all the sesame seeds are his eyes. Is disgusting. <laughs> Yeah, I had trouble with that when it came on. Speaking of, you mentioned The Lost World then. I'm, I'm not going to go into it now because I don't want to put a damper on things. And mm-hmm. Faye brought this to my attention. Have you heard the tragic, tragic tale that was um, behind the, the, the sort of female child voice actor of The Land That Time Forgot? No. This completely passed me by. And The Land That Time Forgot was like one of my favourite films when I was a kid, up there with Scruffy, mm-hmm. obviously. And I, I used to love it. And I thought I might watch that, but I don't think I can now after reading like her life after she really? I can hear, I can hear you typing I, I genuinely don't want to go into it on on the podcast but if people want to be very very sad the land that time forgot the poor girl who did, okay. I think she voiced the little triceratops it's just terrible really really and uh yeah because when Faye said I did hear about the little girl from the land that time forgot and I was like oh no I love that film and then I read about it and thought ah oh, the world's an awful place okay <laughs> here we go <coughs> oh Okay, well, I'll read about that then. Yeah, well, read it. Read the Wikipedia article I allowed to your son before he goes to bed. It'd be bloody lovely. Okay. Um, have you? Uh, do you want to jump on the bus? Do you want to take the reins? Do you want to pull the? We'll be talking about people tugging the throttle later on. Genuinely, is this another the Fast and Furious sequels? No, it's a it's a sequel to a um, LucasArts adventure game. <laughs> no, it's not. It's tugging the <laughs> throttle. Um, it's a reference to a Gary Boosie film I'm going to talk about yeah. <laughs> from 1992. It genuinely just be the title of it, to be honest. Tugging the throttle. Tugging throttle. <laughs> I need um, my throttle tugged. Uh, okay, I'll start off with a, a prime a prime piece of prime um, called Next of Kin, which is, it's, been, it's been trying to get me to watch this for ages. Uh, it's a 1982... One. John Johnson. No. Oh, okay. uh, this is a 1982 Australian psychological horror. Oh, so you could you've got to knot that one then because you type in next of kin, boom. Oh, really? 89 thriller. Uh, I could have guessed John that, really. Starring Patrick Swayze and Liam Neeson and Bill Paxton and Ben Stiller. Bloody hell! You've really missed the boat on this one. So this, yeah. this is kind of, this is the kind of thing I clicked do, so. on the wrong movie. <laughs> um, so come on, tell me stories. So I guess. Uh, early 80s Australian I guess it's part of the Australian new wave the 70s and 80s which also included like Mad Max and Picnic and Hanging Rock it's a personal favourite of one Quentin Tarantino this film uh, which actually makes sense in the context of a recent interview I heard because he was talking about um, I can't remember if it was overrated directors or uh, directors he could never get on board with and he mentioned Alfred Hitchcock and I thought that was quite surprising because uh, Alfred Hitchcock is quite well respected believe it or not but Tarantino's point was that Hitchcock was working at the wrong time uh, which made sense because what he was saying was that Hitchcock had to find um, other ways in order to be subversive or show the violence that he wanted to show sort of thing and actually if he'd been around a decade later or two then he would have been making some amazing schlock um, or dark psychological horrors like this. So it makes sense that he'd like something like Next of Kin because it's like, it's quite Hitchcocky and psychological, but also has some uh, decent, like, not violence and stuff. Um, some arses exploding. Yeah, that's all, all the good stuff. Anyway, so 
the protagonist is a lady called Linda who inherits her mother's big old rural estate, you know, proper shadowy, creaky floorboard type spooky house, which also houses a retirement community. Um, well, the house does. Yeah, so the estate is a retirement community sort of thing. Oh, so right, she's okay. got to kind of manage that as well. Um, so she's a load of old people bumbling around her kitchen, the way you said it was a single house. I need to. Yeah, yeah it's just like a terraced house. Yeah, can you go out there so I can put some toast on? <laughs> yeah. Um, I need to mention before, before I say another word that the ambient synth score is by Klaus Scholz, who, of course, is a former member of Tangerine Dream. So good. Uh is and it of looks... course a member of Tangerine Dream listeners. We were all thinking it, weren't we? <laughs> yeah. We were all thinking it at once. Um, beautiful camera work in this movie. Lots of sh- the shining, like steady cam tracking shots. Um, lots of odd angles and zooms to play with our perception, sort of thing. Um, it's a real dreamlike atmosphere. Some of the slow motion effects are slightly overused, I won't lie. Anyway, it's a slow burn because, of course, in this. At least tell me that the slow motion was filmed at like an incorrect speed and no, the slow dance no. with kind of judders. It's no, it's genuine slow motion. That oh, that juddery slow motion is just the most. Well, that's overused if it's used once, frankly. Uh, uh, yeah. By the way, to everyone, if you're wondering what slow motion effect we're we're talking about, because we refer to this quite often on the podcast, just watch the Metallica Enter Sandman music video, and you will fully <laughs> understand where we're coming from. Um. Yeah, so, but it's a slow burn. Obviously, creepy things start happening at this uh, estate. And, but it's, uh, the scares are kind of mostly confined to like mysterious figures clad in shadow and people standing and staring in the distance, that sort of thing. Um, But other than that, it's more about building up this network of characters and all their unspoken conflicts and gradually revealing their histories and the occasional eerie flashback as well. And it also does a very, I mentioned Shining before, it does this very Shining-like thing of giving us these ostensible jump scares, but without like a crash cut and like loud music crash to accompany it. It's sort of like a silent jump scare, if you like. Like like suddenly someone's startled face will just jump into frame. Uh, And it's really effective, actually. It really works well. So it's really got a really creepy atmosphere. so, yeah, things start really ratcheting up as the residents start dying in mysterious circumstances. And Linda, the owner, this new owner, she she's distrusted anyway. And of course, she's now waltzed in here like she literally owns the place. Um, and there's this really, really sort of major ambiguity as to whether she's going crazy or whether she's being manipulated by some malevolent killer indeed a force of some kind uh and then on top of that there's the mystery of her mother who it turns out was experiencing a lot of the same creepy stuff that linda is now before she died and left her the house so yeah it's quite a it's quite a cool storyline and I, I like the ambiguity of it um I, it's got a really cool and um, unpatronizing script which i like like it doesn't feel the need to explain stuff explicitly constantly you know what i mean like someone will an example would be like there's a, a character says like oh um says someone oh carol is picking picking me up and the other character will like go oh god and it's like a worse film would say right 
explain exactly what's wrong with Carol sort of thing. Why why is this such a bad thing? But in this movie, like you see like five minutes later, Carol will turn up and she's just an annoying twat. And you're like, ah, yeah, OK, I understand why he said that now. It's just little details like that. It's just like a well-written, well-written movie. Good characters, spooky, smart and intense and worth a watch. Definitely. It's quite nicely surprised by this one. Do you know, you were, there was such an impassioned voice coming out of you there, and I, I was like getting tremors of film of the week already from your first movie last second. Ooh, let me just it. scroll down and see some of my others here. Yep, you could be right. <laughs> <laughs> you may be right. But I don't know. Let's, let's let, let, let me just scroll down. Nemesis, Nemesis 2, Nemesis 3, Nemesis 4. Yeah, 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 you're right, Britt. Um, <laughs> well, I think it always helps when you're expecting to see Shash and um, you get pure bronze instead. <laughs> so, um, pure lead. Um, <laughs> No, that's um, well, I that that is one I've I've already as you te- I, I text Faye and said we're watching this. This is this has come with a, yeah, 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 yeah. a a double R, a Rupert recommendation as we call it in the uh, mm-hmm. the Robert Evans household. <clears throat> um, I watched the Net 1995 Sandra Ooh. Bullock, and I had absolutely no recollection of this film, so I think it could be the first time I've ever seen it. So. I would have been 12 when it first came out. So um, mm. stone that is. So yeah, I, I don't, um, I have no, no like um, memory of it at all. So I, I'm assuming this is a film you've seen just after you watched Hackers. Yes. I think I might have spoken about it on a very early episode of this podcast, possibly. Oh really? Yeah. It's would a I, long time I, ago. Oh, hissy microphones like we were trying to talk exactly. about films or stuff in a knife fight in a room full of snakes that I would that I would have won, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I was um, I watched this and it, yeah, if you've covered it before, I'm not going to go into too much depth. It's effectively like a it's 1995. So it's a thriller where um, uh, Sandra Bullock is a uh, works at home uh, and she's sort of debug software effectively for people and gets rid of viruses and so on. And her, she gets caught up in something where someone just wants this disc that she's been given to decrypt and they delete her identity and she goes on the run. Um, it is, I found it surprisingly enjoyable because I was, do you know, when you mm-hmm. watch, we talk about this a lot in the podcast, like old tech. Oh, God, and, uh, enough of it. And there's a bit at the start where she's literally playing Wolfenstein 3D mm. in 1995, two years after Doom was released. And um, <laughs> she's just, just a retro gamer. She wasn't even playing the shareware version of Rise of the Triad, for God's sake. Um, she probably Red just couldn't Rampage. get the sound to work on any other games. Yeah. She was probably too busy trying to get the CD-ROM version of the Seventh Guest to just fucking load um so <laughs> yeah um so she was anyway was sidetracking a bit on a 2x cd bro yeah to, just pop the cd in <laughs> <laughs> oh well something's not reading um, <laughs> so um a chance at the time when the technology was so early you generally might have the cd upside down um yeah so she's she's trying to get rid of this virus and um she sort of gets into all this trouble and um, she goes away on this holiday and this bloke turns up. And the reason I think it's played by Jeremy Northam. Jer- right. Jeremy, Jeremy Northam uh, rocks up as this sort of um, this English debutante who seduces it. And the reason the reason they get into a conversation because she's a bit of a recluse is that um, 
he's on the beach, right? And she's like reading a book or something on the beach because she never has a break. And he says, "Oh, can I?" Uh, to to the the waiter walks past them both and says, "Oh, can I? Uh, can I get you any drinks?" And he, and he says, "Oh, can I have a Gibson, please?" And I thought it's a Gibson, so I paused it and I went online, and a Gibson is a vodka martini with a pickled onion in it. Right. Oh. Bear in mind that oh, pickled, he's pickled on the pole onion. then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's on the pole as he as he takes all of the raw the raw salmon out of his mouth and just gets all the chewing tobacco. Um, <laughs> he's on the, the drink of a man on the pole. I'm walking around eating pickled <laughs> I can't remember, but in this movie, is it trying to make out like he's really Sandra like Bullock? Sandra Bullock is some sort of like geeky recluse who like yeah. couldn't have any man she wanted instantly. She's a yeah, complete she's a, screamer. She's a total utter burner. And yeah, so he says, "Can I have a Gibson?" Explains what the cocktail is, and she was like, "Oh, that's my favorite cocktail." And I thought, "Is it? That's a very specific favorite cocktail." Did Are he say getting... that? He should say that in the movie. Is it really? You know what it's really? Is? It's got a pickled onion. It's like an eyeball in there. Yeah, because he's, he's. I don't fucking like. Yeah, you only order it because I check it on the sand, mate. Um, and then so they they get in a chat, and he takes her back to his boat, where he's clearly just going to kill her for this disc, and. The problem, the main thrust of the film is her getting away from him, trying to kind of reclaim her identity and him constantly being an assassin that's pursuing her. But the issue is the film relies too much on it. He's on the boat with her. He sleeps with her. And then he comes out with a silenced pistol to shoot her dead. Right. Shoot her dead. And he tells her, you're going to die. I'm going to check you overboard and I'm going to get paid a lot of money. But then when she kind of escapes from him, he's constantly ringing her and saying, uh, I was only messing about, man. Oh, come on, let's meet up somewhere really, really abandoned, and we can be friends. <laughs> and and she falls for it a couple of times. Come on, like oh, and I said, you wouldn't, would you, love? So misunderstood. She and I will say this one thing, right? She meets up with her ex therapist, who's also a lover, played by Dennis Miller. And I rolled my eyes when he came on the screen so hard that I did a backflip and landed slightly further back in time, because. Uh, I just thought he is going to come on. He's going to do his weird New York, like sort of like little smarky thing and like shake his head at the camera as he delivers really sleazy one liners. And he didn't. He's actually trying to help her. Um, mm hmm. And yeah, so this goes on and, and eventually, you know, uh, she sort of takes control and gets her life back from these this shadowy people online trying to steal her life away from her. And there's a lot of good old tech on the way. Um. There's also one of the driving plot thrusts for the film is that there's a secretary of defense who kills himself because he is really anti-gay and they forged his tests that he got, he's got HIV. Mm. So, and I thought, well, all he'd have to do is say, I haven't got HIV and just have another blood test. And that that's, yeah. he have to blow his brains out after telling his son he loves him because, and also just because he's got HIV, it, it doesn't mean he's gay. And it's yeah. a driving plot thrust of the film that's constantly like returned to. And I thought you just say I I haven't got HIV. I'll just do another like live blood test if that'll if that'll make people happy. It's a strange subplot. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, so he's got HIV, which just means he's gay. Um, I don't really remember much about the movie, to be honest, but because it's quite forgettable. forgettable. But I I I do remember it being quite charming. But I think that is mostly because of the old tech uh, on show, which is fine. That's I can carry a movie. There's there's a bit in it as well where she she gets away from Jeremy Northam and she's on a on a carousel. And this really tickled me because a few days after this, I was in Cardiff and. We were watching. My son was too young to be on, but we were watching a carousel. And in this film, because of the way it's edited, they've obviously every time they film the carousel, film the carousel spinning, they're moving the camera against the grain of the movement of the carousel to make mm-hmm. it look like it's really spinning fast. Mm-hmm. Because he's hiding in a, like a photo booth and he's trying to get a bead on her and shoot it. And all she's doing is standing on the carousel and looking around. She's not hiding. And he keeps missing as if it's like an impossible shot. And I stood and I stood in front of a carousel in Cardiff and I watched it spin and I thought I could shoot anyone on there. (laughs) It's so slow moving. It's not as risky and dangerous. It's just like a waltzer or something, is it? It's just like, yeah, it's, it's just gently swaying past, isn't it? Yeah, and like going up and down slightly. It's like if you're an assassin, you could probably you could probably do that. Um, yeah. So that was the net. Yeah. The net. It was um, and it, it was fun. It was '90s fun. There's something that, for me, the just the fact that the the, the cars and it, the technology, the actors, it just kind of, it's kind of silly elevated fun. I, I had a good time with it. Yes. What is that available on? I think you know. I <laughs> reckon if you thought about it, you'd know what service <laughs> that was on. This is prime it's prime it's on prime it's prime prime okay i'm gonna swing over to netflix then for the next one Do it. which is a rarity um but yes uh on netflix is a film called let him go which is a film from 2020 sort of a neo-western i guess from someone called thomas bazuccia who's I guess his most famous film before this was probably The Family Stone, but this is not a comedy. Uh, it's quite a simple plot. It's set in the 1950s. Kevin Costner and the perenni- perennially beautiful Diane Lane play aging parents whose son dies suddenly, leaving behind a young child. Now, the widow then remarries pretty quickly marries into an abusive family uh, and this called, sorry let him go so she marries into this abusive family and they kind of steal her and the child away um now obviously kevin and diane don't like this so they head off into deepest montana and with the intention of rescuing the mother and child from this evil family uh, however, the family are violent criminals who do not want to give them up. Uh, so that obviously causes some issues. Uh, it's not especially nothing, especially new, I'd say this film. I mean, you kind of know how it's going to end up, I suppose. But the characters are so well realized that you actually do care when it does end up where it does. So it makes sense. It's really, really good performances from all the le- leads like uh it's it's a really lived in kind of performance from Kevin Costner and Dan Lane. They just seem like a married couple. It's quite it's quite lovely. And and it's got this really good, really cool editing. Like 
she'll be because she's a bit of a firebrand she'll you know she'll do most of the talking and and occasionally like when she's having a rant at someone like trying to get information it will have little cutaways to Kevin Costner and he'll just it's almost like he's trying to like guide her or or kind of yeah like kind of help guide her through like and sort of put limits on her before she goes completely crazy at someone and so it would just cut to him and he'll he'll just like pull a slight a, a slight smirk or or just do a tiny little gesture and it'll kind of tell her everything she needs to know and it sort of tells a story about the shorthand with which the couple relate it's really really well done oh, it nice. looks beautiful uh, shot in like montana and north dakota these huge vistas it's very much kevin costa territory really um and yes he in particular he's the sort of embodiment of old school masculinity uh, although in the end it's actually as much a film about women really and toxic femininity because leslie manville sweet british leslie manville is the matriarch of this horrifying family and she's got like like four or five sons or something and the way she kind of commands them is just really menacing uh and she just wields complete control over them in a really manipulative way uh and it's quite horribly convincing it's unbearably tense at times as well and actually quite shocking in its violence um, at times especially towards the end i really liked it i thought it was like a again it's another of these classical mid-budget movies about adults and for adults and i thought it was really good i really enjoyed it it's called let him go it's on netflix and it's definitely worth a watch oh that sounds dirty okay Mm -hmm. that sounds good Uh do you know that sounds a lot better than the film i watched (laughs) from 1995 starring jeff wincott called street law or jungle law depending which one you watch um, quite different those things yeah the two very different locations um it there's this this film is just a this is a this is a, a tmt a two-minute trashing it starts off with jeff wincott and his early 90s eddie vedder here um it's like a voice he's, he's running in a loincloth through some woods mm-hmm. and and Brenner, I will say that this film is set in modern day LA. Well, you know, modern like 90, mid nineties. Mm. He, he's running in a loincloth, topless through the woods, and he's talking about how sometimes he helps out one of his clients, and they have this hunt, and uh, he steps in to like be part of the hunt to get closer to his clients. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't know what clients he's talking about. It doesn't explain. And it shows some slow motion stuff of him running through rocks and, you know, like through woods and stuff. Proper slow then, motion? Actual slow motion, yeah. Okay. okay. And, then he, and then someone shoots an arrow next to his head in a tree and they get into like a spear fight that then turns into a knife fight. Mm. As other people are firing arrows at him and he's literally just, just getting out of the way but diving through waterfalls and stuff. And then just as he's about to kill this bloke, he kind of puts a knife by his throat and then the other guy sort of puts his hand up to be picked up. And... And then it turns out he's just a lawyer in L.A. And I thought that wasn't that wasn't helping out a client that was it. That was like what that was, um, Jeff, if I may call it what it is, is unused footage from a film that was never made that you did a voiceover to, isn't it? Because 
that's got nothing to do with this film and it's never mentioned again and <laughs> and then he's just a lawyer who's a very bad lawyer demonstrably by the fact that his boss comes in and says can you stop losing cases and can you just stop getting into fights and just like getting into fights with people in the courtroom that's costing us the cases because the judge is throwing everything out of court that'd be great um so he gets in he just seems to just start gambling he just effectively seems to be someone who's just not very good at his job and he meets his kind of bookie who says look you owe like 500 grand now and someone has bought your debt from me and i can't help you anymore and he's like oh no just give me another hundred grand i'll win it back and basically like any old bloody gambler junkie and his friend says like no i, I can't like you keep saying this and you're you're your debt has been purchased from me now with some new guy. Um, you're gonna have to take it up with him. I, I don't. I don't know who he is. And he just like beats up this bloke, which is a, a bit of a plot point because later on, mm. it's made out that like he was kind of right to do that because they were school friends. It's like, no, mm. no, no, it's not, not. That's not right. Um. So this this guy turns out to be the kid guy who's bought his debt is now some sort of Puerto Rican drug kingpin. <coughs> who's back in LA and trying to take over the underground LA scene. And they've got this history and it keeps cutting back to this footage. And I had to rewind it. Cause I thought, was, did I hear something then like mishear something? It's slow motion footage again of them running away from the police and jumping a fence. And Jeff Wincott gets over and this guy who grows up to be a drug lord or whatever he is, mm. doesn't make it over the fence. And he's getting dragged off by the police saying, Oh, you know, help me, Jeff Wincott, help me. And Jeff Wincott is saying, well, you know, um, I never saw him after that day. Uh, and he took the fall for both of us. He spent 17 years in prison. And I thought, what did you do? Like, what did you do as like teenagers, like like young teenagers, like 13 to or 12? to, and, and it's never explained. I thought, that's a long time to be in prison, that is. Um, so as far as we know, Jeff could be a murderer. Anyway, the film goes on then. You pretty and much to, have to be a murderer to get that. <coughs> length of sentence or a or a busy litter bug (laughs) yeah so um the whole plot of the film is then this guy who runs an underground fight ring to get jeff back in and say right you're gonna have to fight your money back sort of thing um and that's the the plot of the film really uh interspersed with him being very bad at his job with his ridiculous eddie vedder here and having this sex scene right where he must have gone up to the cameraman beforehand and said look I know I'm in a sex scene with Christina Cox, who's like this beautiful woman, but I want you to get as much shots of my ass as possible. And I don't mean just my ass, like up my ass. I am going <laughs> to be opening my legs. I am going to be spreading my legs like they are butter on toast. And you get up there, you zoom right up there. <laughs> Boy, you know, it's good for you. Because the sex scene, you've got these like beautiful, this, and you know, it's usually sort of moody thrusting, like well, it's yeah. thrusting my third album it's just like his ass is just and he's always like parting it it's like it usually <laughs> focuses on like the faces of them like grimacing and like you know writhing in pure ecstasy but no an ass a man's it, ass a man's ass opening and shutting <laughs> like, <laughs> a man's like ass a, quacking oh, opening and shutting like a gambler's wallet <laughs> and, i might paint that um and, and he and then at at the point of the sex scene, this guy bursts in, like the drugler bursts in and says, Ha ha, 
she doesn't actually love you. I sent her in to have sex with you. And so Jeff Wilcott slaps this woman in the face and calls her a bitch. And she says, oh, no, he sent me in to have sex with you. But in the meantime, I've actually fallen in love with you. And I thought, really? <laughs> in, the, in the midst of him doing his like frog leg impressions in the bed, like he's got flippers on and he's swimming. <laughs> and um, Yeah. So she's, she's in love with him and that, that's fine. And then, yeah, the film just goes through a series of boring fight sequences until he eventually just faces down on this, this bloke. Uh-huh. It, it's, it's like, it's, it's such a flat film. And and I just wonder, I keep on watching these Jeff Wincott films and I think it's out of just a morbid curiosity as if like, if he'll ever actually like, yeah, it's almost like good. they are better than Don the Dragon Wilson films. I'll give okay. them that. Like they're better filmed, but at least they're on location and it's him like on his Harley with his like Indian flecked clothing driving around LA and you know, there's like a semblance of a plot, but yeah, yeah. I do feel like he's got a decent film in him. Maybe I'm just there's there's not enough Michael Wincott films, and I moved on to Jeff, and I'm like struggling for Jeff as well. Struggling for Jeff. Um, it's another Academy Award-winning drama. So, yeah. So you got kind of regrets about both Jeff and Michael Wincott, then, really? <laughs> yeah. I got, basically the Wincotts need to pull their bloody socks up. All oh, right. They're not even as good. They're not even as prolific as the Quades. Yeah. Um, okay. What's that on? What's it called again? Je- it's called Jungle Street Law. Fever. Or J- no, no. J- Jungle Fever is like a Wesley Snipes film, isn't it? From '93. No, this is um, this is Street Law or Jungle Law. Um, it's oh, so it's one of those films as well. I don't know if you've noticed this. A lot of films that were made on like a low to mid budget in the mid '90s look like it could have been the late '80s or early '90s. Oh, yeah. When it came, it was like in '95. At the end, I thought, bloody hell, I didn't expect that. That's why PM Entertainment's so precious because it's like having '80s movies, but with bigger budgets and better production values. Brilliant. Yeah, and a better director in LA. Um, Good. Okay, I I think we've covered the next one previously, but I think we need to revisit it because I did. It's called okay. Red Heat. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, which I actually paid for on Prime because I couldn't find it anywhere else. Anyway. With with cash money? Cash money. So, the plot. A Georgian terrorist, played by Floridian Edo Ross, obviously, <laughs> murders the partner of a Russian cop, played by Austrian-American Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, he then flees to Chicago and Arnie follows him and teams up with fast-talking, wise-cracking, sexist, ogre, James Belushi. Everythingist. He is foul yeah. in this. And together they have to take him down, this Georgian terrorist. And along the By way... By the way, this is, not, this is like Russian Georgia, not Atlanta Georgia. Yes. No, Just throw not, that out there. Not Georgian. I, I've um, got to say that I loved Victor Ross, as, as in Edo, Edo Ross's um, yeah. accent in this. He's so good. He's, he's, I just thought he was really good at it. Yeah, I mean, he's actually quite believable, but it, it is the casting is quite hilarious. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, so basically they, they team up, and along the way, of course, they're going to realise that common ground can be found between the old US of A and the Soviets. Uh, 
and I was kind of I think when we talked about this before I, I didn't like it much but I, I was I think I was wrong I think I've got, always loved this film yeah so I, I've got I th- go on, yeah it's I think it's got good pacing I think it's got a funny script uh it's directed by Walter Hill I'm not sure whether he wrote it or not um but he did the, sc- the screenplay yeah yeah I mean the odd casting aside it is well balanced in terms of nationalism and outright racism uh and actually it's more critical if anything of american attitudes than soviets uh but yeah when it james belushi in this movie he there's a really dark misogyny about him he's not even funny as such he's just angry all the time and and i think well uh, okay in our era uh, before you carry on um like i've just someone's just hit me in the head with a hammer um is here is it like sort of fluffy brillo pad flyaway or is it like sort of a quaffed with a lot of product in it you've got a nice side it's, like right, it's all over the shop it's just swept into a general wave it's all and, over and the like, shop. it's like, like the oliver reed and Oddbins five minutes before closing <laughs> he must have spent his between shots he must have spent his time just like escaping the makeup people they're coming at him with like hairspray and stuff he's like get away from me you get uh, hide, hiding behind the fridge, like Dennis <laughs> Uh Yeah, so I, it made me think. Like, I think there is a certain clamour in our day and age for some more grounded heroes in an era of superheroes. So, like, you see, like stuff like Taken and John Wick, and I suppose Top Gun or something like that. Like, they're very popular movies these days, and they're almost like an antidote to like the very you know uh the super the invulnerable superhero sort of thing uh and i think part of that is it it's like uh what would you say like a a kind of a fallible masculinity but mixed with genuine heroism sort of thing which is great but i don't think you see the same clamor for the kind of archetypal walter hill style brute that you see in this movie like james belushi like there's no moral core to him really that's the thing it's like this is of its time through and through yeah he is just an unpleasant man uh which is quite funny to watch but it's like wow this this is so dated i mean he just and he basically did that in a lot of movies james belushi to a lesser or greater extent like whether it was at the PG-13 end of the scale or more like this. But essentially he was just a bit unpleasant a lot of the time. Even in stuff like, what's the one? Is it K-9, the one? Is that the dog one? Yeah. Yeah, because even in that, he's just a bit of a brute. Anyway, but Red Heat, yes. Uh, I think that the action is a little bit plodding at times. There's a lot of shot reverse, shot gunplay type stuff. But the final chase with the bus... Is really cool and there's some great practical stunts in this movie so that's fine i thought the storyline was decent and the whole idea of the two cops different styles clashing but ultimately getting the job done works pretty well and yeah like the cold war aspect is dated but you know when especially given the very hot war in ukraine at the moment there is something kind of universal and comforting about the idea of different cultures finding common ground so it's it's essentially quite laudable underneath it all 
and it's not as outright racist as something like 48 hours so or bullet to the head yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, with this, they've got a lot of fond memories of it because, I mean, there's the scene where he um, obviously like it's Larry Fishburne is in this. Yes, of course. Um, and Peter Boyle is the, the the brilliant, like loud voice commander. And you've got the, the, the two James Belushi scenes that actually made me laugh. Possibly the two only scenes that he's ever done that have made me laugh um, in this are where he gets an injection from being bitten by a dog or something. And he says, what was in that cement? <laughs> and and then the, the second line where um they 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 just go off on they just take off after I think it's Gina Gershon's character yes and he spills all the coffee over him and he just is in a voiceover he says oh it looks like I pissed my pants <laughs> and um, that really tickled me but I do like the fact that again with this film because it is so tight I know you say it's not it's, it's very of its time like I wouldn't have even noticed it as a kid when I first watched it because I've watched this film easily over fifty times over the years and it's not. I like the fact there's no character up for James Belushi because it just it, yeah it it actually makes sense with just how much of like an idiot he is. Like he looks through it at the end and they kind of shake hands. They got the job done, but they're so cr- incredibly different. And there's yeah. no there's like there's sort of like a mutual respect, and that is it. It never goes into um, sentimentalism. Yeah. Like that. No, it doesn't, and it's not like it's not like persuaded to stay or anything like that. They uh, go their separate ways and they remain yeah. separate. They, like Entities, they remain yeah. quite distant in terms of their culture and stuff. And, so. and I think from memory, the only kind of bending that Arnold Schwarzenegger does as Ivan Danko from his like it's sort of his diligence to duty is where he shoots the lock and lets her go because he, he yeah. just understands she's innocent. And, and it's like that one, obviously that leads to not a great outcome for her, but that yeah. one, it's like he, he understands that like, okay, there are situations where you have to, you have to be flexible. Yeah. Um, and that pushes it towards the the final denouement sort of thing. But no, I I I like this film, and I think how long is it? I'm just looking on IMDb. It's 103 minutes. It's quite long, but <laughs> I, yes. Uh, but I yeah, I don't. It's it's one of it. I would say it's like a. I'd be tempted to say it's top ten Arnie. To be honest, for me. Uh, yeah, that'd be no, that'd be fair. Like, I mean, Arnie's made some trash as well, so I think it's. I think. But I'd have know, to. I'd have to. I watch think it'd fit into. Again. Yeah. Um, I'm clapping. Um, yeah. So, oh yeah, I think it's in top ten. I mean, it's not top five material, but yeah, I think it's on the outer reaches. Yeah, I'm glad that I was wrong about it the first time. See, well, that's I quite nice. myself. Yeah, and I, I think as well, it's one of those. It's, it's, it's I don't, I don't really know how to say it other than this, but it, it's okay to like unpleasant films. It's okay to watch films with unpleasant morals if. If you can just say right, that was very much of its time, you don't have to sort yeah. of tattered it. Yeah, and I think, I mean, at the end of the day, he's a, I mean, it's a character, isn't it? I don't think, I don't think you're meant to see. It's not like you're meant to see like James Belushi as the real hero, and Arnie is this kind of stick in the mud, stick up his ass, uh, like Soviet, like square. I think you're meant to. <sighs> see the blatant flaws in both of their approaches more than anything you're meant to be critical of both of them really but actually and then gradually they find the kind of common ground in each other but in a quite a subtle way what this is a if you like obviously this is kind of an old family favorite of the roberts but what would what made you want to watch it to reassess it because with watching these especially with time being precious as a father with 
like I wouldn't think mm. to reassess a mid eighties action film, if you know what I mean. Uh it was purely because uh we had the day off and my wife wanted to watch Arnie movies. So that's that was literally it. So uh and this is one that she hadn't seen. So and she hasn't seen Raw Deal yet either, so that'll have to be sorted out. That'll be a that'll be a tougher sell, I think. I mean, <laughs> yes. I, no, I, I I know that sounds. I I really like Raw Deal because it was one of the first Arnie films I ever saw, and and I like it more as I get older because when I was younger, I didn't understand the plot points. I just yeah. enjoyed the gunplay, and and I kind of when you when I was a kid and you watch an Arnie film, you're building up to the big shootout at the end, and there's a great one in that because of course. He goes through loads of guns and you've got the whole scene where he's like racking him up the same as in commando and that would completely made my blood boil as a kid uh, but now like now i see the um like it's harry his friend it's like it's really hard it, like his, his subplot and like arnold schwarzenegger's like failed marriage and stuff like that it's little bits the kind of where you watch it as an adult they're not amazingly clever or subtle but they do give it a sheen of, of like oh i kind of understand those parts now as well you know stuff that right. when i was a kid wouldn't have appreciated so but yeah so maybe she, it'd be interesting to know what, she, what did she think about red heat uh she she ended up liking it she wasn't sure at the start because obviously the start it's quite a weird start and it all it all starts in russia doesn't it and it's quite austere so, and it's very <laughs> yeah, it does not look like it's going to be a typical arnie movie and it actually in the end it isn't really a typical arnie movie i suppose but once it heads to Chicago, then it's like, okay, I feel like I'm on comfortable ground here. Do you know that the um, a bit of trivia I've just weirdly known since I was quite young? The the bit of trivia about the the stuntman in the snow. Oh, is this where they? It's astonishing opening scenes. I can't believe you've ever mentioned that. Where they, they really starts out in like a, a sauna, like a bathhouse in the middle of Russia, in the middle of like an ex-Russian gulag or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and of course. He starts having a fight. Oh, that's a bit where he picks up like a burning coal, isn't it? Yeah, they um, say to him, they they try, they say to him, he says, I'm a blacksmith. And they say, well, if you're a blacksmith, they'll be used to this heat. And they make him hold like yeah. a rock out of the sauna from an open flame. And he clenches his fists around it and then punches the bloke in the face. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. I would have thought a blacksmith would probably be the last people to be like gripping hot coals, to be honest. They'd know to avoid it more than anyone yeah. and probably wouldn't want to do it because it would really affect their ability to maintain a small to medium sized business. And if, yeah. and if not, and I've got to say that if not, then why isn't there a bat like a metal band called Russian Blacksmith where it's just like a bloke who literally just his hands are just these gnarled trees of things <laughs> and man <laughs> handles molten metal with his own fists. <laughs> but you know, the, the uh, yes, I was going to yes. say... <laughs> It's called Benny something. Uh, the guy, apparently the stuntman who did that stunt in the snow, he had a heart attack and died. What? Um, After that scene? The blokey, the, I think it's like an Asian guy that he punches out right. of the window. The stuntman, well, I'm sure he so passed away. So basically Walter Hill's a murderer as well. Goodness. Well, not as much as Michael Murderer Bay, obviously. Yeah, that's, but, true. Um, that's true. Do you know, but it's Michael, hilarious, it's that Michael, whole sequence where they're having a fight in the snow. And they're wearing, they're not even wearing towels. I mean, it's a flannel. <laughs> over his knob are those flannels reaching as well they are <laughs> reaching yeah. um, I watched a after I found out that Michael Bay was a murderer by the way I was watching a, an interview with him the other day and I paused it and his eyes were he could have been blinking but it looked like his eyes were rolling back in his head 
And I, I was really, and I stood right up next to my screen and I looked into his pixelated eyes, his pixelated 4K eyes. And I just got this image of the what he was thinking of at the time. And he was thinking of a weak badger being kicked. And I thought, ah, oh, see, I should have known. I should have known that it would lead yeah. to pigeon murder, the worst I kind should, of murder. It should have been a clue. Yeah. So if anyone else, you've if you've Michael ever seen it. Mind. If you've ever read Michael Bay's mind and you've taken up, you've got a screenshot of him rolling his eyes back in his head, and and just if you've got a flash in your mind of what he was thinking of, and if it was a, abuse towards animals or humans, yeah. send it to us at the Men Who Talk at uh, Outlook.com, and we can we can just spread yeah. the word. Hopefully, just get him imprisoned and murdered himself. That's the only way they learn murderers is if they are murdered, and then they know, yeah. oh, that's that's not very nice. If you ever see so, him on the street and he goes up to a sad dog. And starts calling it names. You know what is in his mind. You know what's yeah. going through his mind. You you know if he's if you ever see Michael Bay and he's on set filming between breaks and he's sipping his coffee, but then he's kind of trying to nonchalantly look over at a cat and like eating some sick. You know he's thinking about putting chewing gum up the cat's dick. That's what he's thinking about doing, and that would lead to obviously that. his intestines exploding. So. Yeah, just stop Michael Bay, really. Just stop Michael Bay from many things, really. Mainly making films, but secondly, <laughs> abusing animals. I just, yeah, I don't like it at all. Um, First, he murdered cinema, then he murdered the animals. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep this in because I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do is put myself on mute. I'm gonna pour myself a drink because I need a drink to talk about this next film, Rupert. Okay. <laughs> it's not often I do this. So I don't know if I'm gonna keep this in the recording. I don't know if you want to enter, entertain the fans. I'm just gonna go on mute for about 20 seconds. Well, you didn't. Well, you you didn't say a word then, Rupert. I said I would keep it in. You had a bit of free time, but you didn't say a single word. I actually got myself a drink as well. That is. <laughs> Okay. An efficient use of both of our time. <coughs> okay. Right. I'm gonna. Like, I wish out of all the reviews we've done, I wish I'd done this the day after I watched this film, because it's not often you come you come to a movie that you've always wanted to watch, and you watch it and you think, wow, wow, why wasn't I sat here? I, as I was watching the film, I thought Rupert needs to be sat next to me now holding my fucking hand so he can sit through this with me and we can just mm-hmm. take it in turns to say wow uh, until until the tape runs out on the podcast because <sighs> I, I hope I can I really hope I can capture my thoughts on this film and I remember everything right I watched Grease 2 and I've I, I watched the original Grease many times. It's one of my favorite musicals, even though I'm a massive musical lover. And the worst thing you can say about the original Grease is arguably that it's front loaded with the best songs. Right. And which is pretty much every musical. Yeah. Oh, really? OK, I have not much experience with them. Yeah, I don't know. I find it. I, I find that tends to be the case. But yeah, movie I, musicals anyway. Yeah, I, I just I'm here to. I'm here as like an arbiter for the human race because I've heard people say that Grease 2 is like the, is better than the first one. And I've heard people say, oh, it's not as good. But they really, they really have not got to the heart of the matter, which is that Grease 2 is a fucking piece of shit. Right. It is 
absolutely abominable as a film it's disgusting and i couldn't i couldn't i was watching it thinking this isn't a student film this isn't like something that albert pia knocked up this is like a this is a film an actual film that was in the cinema and um uh, yeah so obviously i just want a little shout out to olivia newton john because hopelessly devoted to you is one of the best pop singles and vocal performances of all time moving on from that I I I had no expectations for Grease too. I know my mum doesn't like it. She prefers the first one. One of my ex-girlfriends said it was better than the original. And I've heard it pitted patted around as whatever. So when I sat and watched it, I just thought, well, I'll just finally watch the sequel. It's total shit is what it is, Rupert. It starts off with Frenchie from the original coming back and explaining to someone, oh, yeah, um, I'm back because... I went to study, I need to study chemistry because now I'm into beauty makeup and that's why I'm back in the film. And the bloke she's talking to with a a bizarrely cut glass, uh, accurate English accent, I thought, Christ, I know you. Because I put this on without looking at the cast list or anything. Mm. And I I thought, Christ, you look very familiar to me. And it was about 10, 15 minutes into the film after awful intro song where I thought, oh my God, I know who you are. You're Maxwell Caulfield of Alien Invasion film uh, of, of fame. Like, you're <laughs> Maxwell Caulfield. Why have you got such a good English accent? So the story is that Maxwell Caulfield has, has arrived at this sort of handsome English uh, high school student. And Michelle Pfeiffer is the leader of the T, not the T-Birds, the Pink Ladies. And she basically only shags people from the T-Birds. So he wants to become a T-Bird so he can shag Michelle Pfeiffer. But... Mm. He can't be a T-bird because he's not cool enough. As told to him by the leader of the T-birds, not Danny Zuko, uh, like the master of charisma, John Travolta, as told to him by seeming smack addict, the man who sound, who's got a surname that sounds like something you've got when you've got a bee in your mouth and you spit it out, Adrian Zmed. <laughs> he says, you're not cool enough to be a, a, a T-bird, so you know you can you can whistle me. And the whole film is Maxwell Caulfield trying to seduce um, Michelle Pfeiffer, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the main thrust of the film. So you've got some recurring characters like the head, the headmistress, and um, uh, what's his name? The bloody not Scarface, Crater Face. More on that later. So he, Michelle Pfeiffer's fantasy, as she tells Maxwell Caulfield in a key scene, is I want to. I want to just be swept off by a black rider. And she sings this dreadful song uh, about um, like a guy who just turns up in black leathers and just sweeps her off her feet and just takes her out for like rides on his bike. And that's like her ultimate fantasy. Right. So fast forward to like a couple of months later when Maxwell Caulfield turns up openly talking in the only English accent in the entire film wearing a black leather cat suit that's half undone to get his chest out and she gets on his bike outside the gas station she works at and he drives her around and she's just almost orgasmic at this time spent with him driving around with this black rider he drops her off and then sees all the T-birds approaching obviously trying to kick the shit out of him for like going with one of their girls and she says oh what are you going to do now black rider and he goes Oh, I think I'll be off, mate. Oh, dally-ho. And I thought, and she's, <laughs> she watches him scoot off and thinks, oh, who could he be? And I think, well, I know who it is. It's <laughs> Maxwell Colford from Alien Invasion with Billy T, isn't it? And um, and so th- that's the main 
thrust of the film, right? That is the plot. The songs. The songs aren't just badly written. They're badly produced and badly recorded and badly sung. And they're all about shagging. And not like the original where it's like Grease Lightning is about like, you know, using getting getting the car so saucy that the women fancy it in a kind of kitschy way. Actually about just shagging and intercourse. Um, like really crassly. But there's the scene where it's all about it's called reproduction and they're all just talking about oh, women swallowing cum and spraying inside them and stuff. And you're like, what? This isn't even like dressed up and it's just people pretending a deep throat in the classroom. There's no class to it at all. Um I mean, I remember like in the original list, like Summer Nights, right? That song. And how it kind of like it quite subtly was meant to be about intercourse a bit but saucy. It was, yeah but it was more about the way it was sung how it kind of ratcheted up into this kind of orgasmic finale type thing that it is gone. Re- gone it was there was a, a certain subtlety to it at least but you're saying that basically now they're just like nah let's just talk about shagging there's no class in this film. There is no class in this film at all. Another one is a guy getting a woman in a bunker and telling her that he's going to join the army and he's kind of engineered these fake sounds to sound like that there's a war going on. He's going to be taken off. So he's like, are you going to shag me? Wow. You're doing it for your country, which is effectively rape. Let's call it yeah. what it is. And he's like really sleazing over it. And uh, the only reason that doesn't go ahead is because his friends like sniggering so loud outside the door that she can hear them. Um, it's just, it's just every song is dreadful. And another thing is, I, I realized halfway through that I thought these a lot of these people clearly aren't actors, and a lot of them, they, and none of them are singers. It's very clear because you know, mm. like in the in the first summer nights, in the first song summer nights, in the original Greece, where like they, for instance, at the end of the crescendo of summer nights. They, you know, the, the actual where they sing summer nights and both go high, and it says, "Tell me more, tell me more." Da da da. John Travolta is like a decent singer, but he hits a really weird back of the throat Paul Young falsetto with that note to get that high. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's not like a classic operatic falsetto. He kind of goes, nah, and it kind of works because it's that's his character in the film. In this, no one can sing. So what they've got is, and of course, the key thing between Greece and Greece 2 is one was recorded in the 1970s when music was real, and one was recorded in the 1980s where every snare hit had 40 gallons of reverb on it. So it's this really, like, echoey, <laughs> distant, soft, like, uninteresting, like, like riffless, mel- melodyless music anyway. And then you've got two people who can't sing on the top of it, kind of atonally competing against each other, and it sounds really amateurishly mastered. So every time a song kicks off, you know it's going to be painful. Um and this goes on and on with these awful songs. And then Craterface turns up and drives onto like the school sort of, um, what are they called? Like athletic grounds. And they're bullying the T-Birds. And I thought, hang on. And I paused the film. Adrian Zmed at the time was 23, playing a 17-year-old. The bloke that played Craterface was 35. <laughs> 35 years old. So if I was Adrian Zmed and I was smoking a fag in ridiculous shorts on an athletic ground in my high school and someone who was 35 turned up on a bike, I turned around and say, what, sh- haven't you got a job? Like, what what are you doing here? Why are you 35 hassling high schoolers, you absolute prick? And that would be the end of the conversation. It's like, what's a man hurtling towards 40 doing hassling high schoolers? So, and I get the impression that some people turned up for a day or two because he just like leaves. 
the same as Frenchie just leaves the film. People just turn up and then just leave and nothing happens. It's like, oh, remember me? Right, I'm, I'm off now because I'm nearly 40, quite frankly. Um, um, and then, yeah, it goes on. And there's a scene in it, right? There's a scene in this film to show how completely, how how just amateurish the whole thing is. That scene I mentioned with Maxwell Caulfield, where he's singing about the, she's singing to him about the Black Rider. They're in the school theatre. And she starts singing and dancing around saying, I want this black rider to come and sweep me off my feet and take me away. And he's just sort of just eyes wide following around as she does a dance and song. And it leads out the back of the theater, bright as day. And she ends the ends the song by doing this kind of thing where she she sort of thrusts in two directions. Like, say, mm-hmm. imagine she's facing 12 o'clock. She'll thrust three times at 10 o'clock. Then she'll thrust three times at 2 o'clock. And then she'll Ooh. spin forwards three times and repeat it. So, And he and the camera is kind of looking past him as he's leaning on the door frame as she thrusts off into this open field. And I thought, right, that's the end of the song. So, obviously, it'll cut to him, cut back, and she'll be gone. No, she keeps doing it. And someone approaches it, uh, him and says, oh, so what What did Michelle Pfeiffer say to you? And he's like, oh, I don't think she fancies me. Oh, why didn't she fancy you, mate? Oh, she wants some black rider. And they're having this really bollocks conversation. Uh, and, and in the fuzzy background is Michelle Pfeiffer, like, thrusting off behind some bushes, like, well into the distance. Like, the dance has gone on, like, far too long. And I thought, she must feel like a prick. And and also, like, she looks like she should be tackled by people in white suits at some point. Um, and, and the whole film is like that, just this weird sense of amateurishness and, like, atonal singing and awful songs. And at the end of the film, he gets, like, accepted into the T-Birds, when I thought the whole point was, well, no, you don't need to be a team because they're just a bunch of wankers, aren't they? So you should, and, and they look like drug addicts. So you should just, well, get with Michelle Pfeiffer. And that, that it was like they couldn't even get the ending right. It's an awful film, and there is, I, people who say this is anywhere near par as the first Grace, like they just, I assume they just haven't seen it because it is awful. It's out out of tune singing with bad music production, non actors. Actoring amateurishly, and just it's dreadful. There's nothing good about it to the point that I would say it's actually worth a watch just so you can see what like it's the worst musical I've ever seen, and I can't believe that it got a theatric. I can't believe it's not like a joke, if you know what I mean. Why it's it's, it's can you think of why it could be that there are people who are devotees of Greece too, because presumably yeah. they like Greece one, and yet well, it's night and day between the two. I assume because I mean in the early eighties is when the whole sex comedy kicked off with like lemon popsicle and porkies, so I don't know if that played a tiny part in it. But I've seen mm. those films and they're total shit as well. Um, but but then this is this is like that. It's probably worse than those because it makes you sit through full four minute songs that are just about shagging. It's honestly, it's like a Kiss concert if auto tune was turned off and their their instruments were out of tune, and it was the '80s. So there's every time he hits the snare drum, it sounds like someone drowning. Where can we watch Grease Two if we're so inclined? You know it's on Prime. Yeah. You ask these questions, you silly Billy. It's Prime. <laughs> and I bet Grease the original isn't on there. That's usually what happens, isn't it? You're like, oh, fancy uh, watching Greece. Oh, they've only got Greece too. Well, this is this is the thing because it, it is because I watched it and I thought I do like Greece 
and I and I really love Hopelessly Devoted to You. I think one of my favourite songs. And then it came out, oh, do you want to watch Grease 2? And I thought, yeah, do you know what? I bloody do. Luckily, because I'm in a co-host in a film podcast. Otherwise, I would have thought, no. But I thought, well, at least if it's, at least if it's bad, I can talk about it. But I was surprised by how bad it was. Like, mm. as a, I couldn't, it got to a point where I thought, oh, I just might turn this off. But I thought, how, how, can, how can this be so bad for so long? And that was what kept me involved. Like my marriage. <laughs> can you think of another film where you've in, like liked the first one so much and hated the second one so much? Like a one-two punch like that. Well, I mean, I've seen the first two Nemesis films with Albert Pian and the, yeah, the drop in quality there is astonishing. But like a mainstream I'm talking about. Um, yeah. It's one I, to I, think about. Maybe we can't think of yeah, the top of our heads, but yeah, let's okay, give it some yeah. thought because there must be... <sighs> yeah, because it's crushing, I, isn't it? It makes it even worse. I, I, when... It's not... I think It wasn't so much crushing. Like, I wasn't expecting much. But... I was I was just I thought like this is a major release this is a film that was made and I'm watching with my eyes and hearing with my feet and it's I can't I couldn't it's like it's indefensible and people may think oh I'm not going to watch Grease 2 I don't want a musical like watch it and, and just think Jesus Christ this film should have been called wow because it's it's just <laughs> it's astonishing and not even Michelle Pfeiffer can save it it's yeah, and apparently um, Maxwell Caulfield was a complete prick as well during filming. Ah, so, uh, okay. So there's always that to fall back on. But yeah, the, the, it's just worth it for the songs. It's just they're astonishingly bad. Uh, okay, maybe I will. Wait. I I would like to see the original again. So at least that's on Prime as well. Um, I, I'd be I'd like you to watch it so I can I'd be intrigued as to your thoughts because I was surprised when it finished. I sat there and I thought. I am surprised by how how much I hated it. Like, it was just it was it was bad, bad. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm gonna head over to Disney Plus now. Um, this is a weird one because uh, we I was talking to my wife and we really really wanted to watch True Lies, the James Cameron movie from the nineties and 94 and went on to justwatch.com to check out where it's streaming nowhere it was nowhere <laughs> it literally wasn't available to even purchase anywhere and um so we thought, okay brilliant well done uh but then weirdly literally the next day it suddenly just showed up on disney plus like they knew like they knew that we wanted to watch a mid-90s action movie uh, and there it was so uh, we got to watch True Lies, and this one is another Arnie. He is a secret agent who, with the help of Tom Arnold, must take down a uh, jihadi terrorist in the form of Art Malik. Um, the twist in the tale is that Arnie's wife, Jamie Lee Curtis, thinks that her husband is in sales, uh, and she is feeling neglected and she is edging ever closer to having an affair with the hilariously sleazy Bill Paxton, who is an actual like used car salesman. It's a very odd structure to this film, actually, because it's this pretty basic espionage action plot. But then there's like an hour of 
character farce inserted into the midsection before mm-hmm. the kind of big showdown. It's sort of like a mini Mr. and Mrs. Smith type thing in the middle. And I think it works because it gives the final act um, sort of more stakes than your average action thriller, I'd say. I mean, it does mean we have a comedy action movie which is skirting 2.5 hours, but this is James Cameron and, you know, why would he care about anything being two and a half hours? Uh, I think that... I mean, it's obviously very flashy and expensive and it's all up there on the screen. Um, But in quite a nice sort of 90s way, I guess Cameron hadn't yet had a chance to start playing about with computer graphics. So it's all on a very grand scale, but, you know, some pretty cool stunts and stuff. I I do think Mission Impossible has sort of superseded this in a way. Uh, And... And it's, you know, Mission Impossible's got sort of better, better everything really nowadays, but especially better bad guys, for example. And I will say better stunt doubles, because honestly, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he must be on the screen for about 50% of his screen, of his scenes. There are so many moments when I thought that is not Arnold Schwarzenegger riding a horse. That is not Arnold Schwarzenegger, like walking up some stairs it's like it's a stunt double most of the time. That is not Arnold Schwarzenegger's ass doing that striptease in front yeah. of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> uh, I, it's sort of like it's kind of like sort of a sort of tr- I wouldn't want to say trashy exactly, but it's like when you look at James Cameron's career, it's sort of like it. This has the feel of a, a kind of a high class contract job, should we say? Like, I don't think James Cameron really is ever usually this playful, should we say? And I don't think we'll ever see him being this frivolous again. But um, it's a real 90s artifact in a way. It feels like sort of the the connective tissue between like the quite grounded 80s action style and the mega budget blockbusters that began in the mid 90s and beyond. So. It's an interesting movie, uh, and it's, it is enjoyable. I mean, it is long, but but you know, I think Arnie and Jamie Lee Curtis work weirdly well together in this movie, and she's super hot, so that's absolutely fine. Um, and Bill Paxton's hilarious. He's such a weasel. <laughs> the only way I can describe him in this film is brilliant. He's literally pissing his pants. It's like. He's nothing. It's uh, such a sneeze. I think when 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 you're in when you're in the situation where like even Tom Arnold is shooting the floor around your feet and saying I'll just piss off, yeah. you know you know you're like okay I'm at a lower here. I, I am really not alpha male. Yeah, yeah. It, it is it's good and there's and it it's rare to have these mid nineties big budget action films where the comedy works. Yeah. And I, and I, th- I think, sorry, I'm going to cough. I think in this, the comedy does work. Like the the reveal of like him being a spy and her despondency at it and say, and how close she was to an affair and her playing it down. Sorry, I'm going to cough again. Well, I think the possibly the reason why it does work. Mm, sorry. And 
this may go back to our discussion about like red heat and things like that like uh that it's quite um it's a bit more of a modern well in, in a way it's like a it's actually very old-fashioned kind of comedy style with the kind of the farce of the them of her not knowing what he does etc and him kind of going through ridiculous convoluted plans to trick her and stuff and all of that is quite farcical and old-fashioned but it's also it's like a bit of an antidote to the kind of more misogynistic racially motivated kind of comedy of the 80s uh and early 90s and that so it's almost like it almost feels kind of family friendly almost it's quite wholesome yeah it displaces the humor to a sort of domestic situation as opposed yeah. to yeah it's yeah I mean, that i do you know what that feels like that actually could be the core of it because you've got um what's his name tom arnold's like the sort of you know mm. the, the best mate it's effectively like a kind of comedy drama with all of the drama just replaced by action so it's not yeah there's no like at home scenes like there's very few scenes with a very young eliza dushku in this actually um yeah and, and and when they are it's kind of like boom 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 and then it's off to some event or some yeah some spy attack it's like there's always something going on yeah and it's then, like the um it's sort of like the comedy situations are set up as character moments uh but then they're resolved through ridiculous action sequences so the kind of like the boring drama bits like you say in their place are just ridiculous set pieces instead and it does work quite well um no I, I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it and did your wife enjoy it yeah she loves it this is her arnie choice i think on that day this is arnie day so because um, i chose red heat she just realized I just want to quickly say there's a new Tom and Jerry film made with Chloe Grace and Rats in it, and just mm. don't watch it. Okay. It, it like don't, if you're a fan of hers or if you're a fan of Tom and Jerry, just don't watch it. It's just not funny, and I don't know what it has is. Has there been but, anything? Uh, has there been a funny Tom and Jerry cartoon since 1943? Well, this is the thing. I remember watching. I used to have a VHS tape of Tom and Jerry cartoons I taped, um, mm. uh, with the highlight of the entire what. 80 years of Tom and Jerry being when they go fishing mm. and Jerry, Tom running away from Butch the dog and then Butch running around a fishing rod, which is teetering and the camera pans up and on the top balanced on a single pawn vibrating to keep his balance is, is Tom. Like that's the pinnacle of comedy, right? That is the pinnacle of physical comedy. Really? Um, and, and then you watch this and you realize it's like no one involved in the film understood what was what was actually funny about Tom and Jerry, what you need is constant, like hurtful physical comedy. It's not yeah. a lot of human interference at all. I don't, I don't know. I don't. It's just, it's just really, really horrible visceral violence between creatures. That's all it is. Yeah. Done in a really cartoonish way that kind yeah. of takes all of the the blood and the, um, the empathy yeah. out of it. And that would be the genius. If I could say, well, I watched a 90 minute or 80 minute or 70 minute, tom and jerry film where it was just constant violence and i just laughed at it because it was just so cartoonishly funny they don't need live action it is shit and that's that film summed up so Excellent. tom and jerry wasn't very good um i've got two left i don't know how many you've got left sorry i've just got the one remaining. Oh, on, then. off your trot tootsie oh okay uh i will talk about another disney plus offering uh, this is big uh 
from 1988, a body swap comedy directed by the late Penny Marshall and co-written by Gary Ross, who... Why did the name Penny Marshall? That sounds familiar. Uh, she did like In a League of Their Own and uh, some other stuff. It's like quite gentle kind of comedies, much like oh, this sure. one. Um, but yes, yeah, co-written by Gary Ross, who is known these days for The Hunger Games. Um Anyway, so big. It's about uh, it starts off with Josh, who's this thirteen-year-old kid who's small, and he uh, wants to pull an older chick, and uh, he wishes upon a magic fairground machine to be big. And the next morning, he wakes up to find that he's Tom Hanks, and he's freaked out by this. Naturally. Does he say, "Oh, for fuck's sake, I wanted to be Colin Hanks"? <laughs> um. Yeah, so he does a runner to New York where, frankly, he stumbles into the most outrageous good luck. He instantly gets a job as a toy tester for um, a big company. And then within moments, within days, he's been promoted to vice president. Um, But then, of course, he starts trying to operate in the ultra competitive world of adults. And I'd say there's a it's quite a charming innocence to the first act of this movie. And I, I think it comes down to the fact that Josh and his best friend are prepubescent boys. So they, they're still at the stage where they think girls are like icky and all, all of the funny stuff really is front loaded into the film. Um, when Tom Hanks is actually acting like a kid and stuff, it's when Josh, this kid who's in Tom Hanks' body when he gets into a relationship with his colleague uh this lady uh that things get creepy and I realized that I've always thought it was a bit weird and I think it's well documented that it is a bit creepy uh but it didn't have to be this way and that's what I realized this time around because she's played by Elizabeth Perkins right and there's a scene in this film where she's sort of in this relationship with Tom Hanks and her colleague. Uh, there's a scene with her colleague where basically he reveals that she has a sexual history and based on kind of opportunism. So sort of like sleeping with people to work our way up the career ladder sort of thing. And I just thought, is that necessary? Do we need that piece of information about her? Because it's an in- is it an interesting bit of character depth or is it a needlessly cynical detail in an otherwise family friendly film? And and then you combine it with the fact that they do actually have sex in the film. So she's having sex with this kid effectively. Mm. Um, and I was thinking that doesn't need to be in there either. Why? Because you could remove the whole idea that they've had it, sex. It, 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 it could just be a goofy crush. Yeah. Yeah. They could have had all the kind of awkward courting and stuff like that and then not have sex. And instantly the film would become heartwarming and innocent. And there's a line towards the end of the film where she discovers that he's actually a boy. And and she, there's this kind of throwaway line where she says, oh, that explains it. When what she means is that explains your performance in bed, I think. Um, because he's a kid, which is weird. But 
that even that line could have stayed in the film because what that line could have meant was that explains it that explains why you wouldn't have sex with me because you don't want to have sex with an adult female because you're a child so you know they could have kept that line in and it would have just been like oh you know that explains why you wouldn't sleep with me and it would have been kind of like a a wholesome funny line but for some reason they kept in this whole sordid sexual aspect which doesn't need to be there and that's the thing it does not need to be there it could have it, been just as good a film when i watch when i've i haven't watched big like tom hanks films like um turner and hooch and stuff aren't ones i tend to revisit a lot um but we, i'm big i know a lot of people really really like because you that's the one with the the keyboard dancing scene isn't it yes with is it with what's his name robert what Loja. um but can you imagine if it was the other round, if it was a young girl and and it was like an adult yeah. man having sex with a nine year old girl or something? <laughs> it, it just it, it. Yeah. The moment you said it, I thought, well, I, I haven't seen this film in such a long time, but I didn't realize they went that far. And yeah, that is weird. And that is absolutely something that is like that would not wash now. No. And it and, and rightly and so, because it didn't need to. Like that, that sounds like it actually taints the film and makes it unpleasant. Yeah, it does. It does. It makes it completely like discolors the back end of the film which is such an odd decision that they made to do that but yeah clearly it wouldn't happen now i think but in terms of being a showcase for like tom hanks's comic talents is very good because he is very good although it's not as good as the money pit which is actually held up a lot better and is possibly a better uh, kind of showcase for Tom Hanks. Um, Who's the f- female foil in the Money Pit? His wife in it. Uh, what's her name? I cannot remember her name, but she's really cool. But she's in. She's in was Modern Family you now. Was there a time when Tom Hanks, because he was known for comedy in the eighties? Yes. What was the last comedy he did? The last out and out comedy was it the, like the Lady Killers? Uh, let me think yeah possibly i can't think of it i mean it's all pretty it's probably pretty serious stuff what did he do i mean saving private ryan no it must have been something before that where you know he he turned to darker roles but i i mean i find that it quite often happens that comic actors turn out to be really good dramatic actors because Jim Carrey did the same thing didn't he had the same trajectory rarely does it go the other way I'd have to say as we've seen with the likes of Robert De Niro he's just incapable of being funny it seems uh but yeah but Tom Hanks he was he was really good in this uh but I just think it's it hasn't aged well and I think in terms of if you want kind of mixture of slapstick and character and farce the money pit is a better movie i honestly think so uh and of course the burbs is a better film although it's a bit darker that yeah I, I, when i think of um tom hanks I, I tend to think of the burbs as like my go-to tom hanks film just because you've got so much gold in there with like bruce dern and Corey <laughs> feldman and yeah it's like much a nice snapshot of the time but yeah. And, and just... well, the burbs work so well because, in a way, Tom Hanks is kind of the straight man, sort of. It's like he's 
I mean, obviously he's losing his mind as well, but mm. he's not the wacky one exactly because he's got like Bruce Stone is totally nuts in that film, for example. There is something great about actors that can convincingly lose their minds in a comedic way. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, I mean we've had the conversation before online about um, like just great comedic actors, uh, physical actors, you know. Um, what was I going to say? Like, oh, you, your brother actually sent a message to the group the other day about the scene. <laughs> The scene in The Three Amigos that I completely forgot about where Steve Martin turns to Chevy Chase and Martin Short and says, oh, they're, go- they're going to kill us. And they all start, like, sobbing, but in, in different ways. And the camera cuts. It's the, it's the way the camera cuts between them, as if one of them's going to stop and say something that, that'll, like, br- bring them out of their stupor. And it's like, uh, 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 and it'll cut the smell squad. Uh, uh, and then it just keeps cutting round, and, like, no one's stops crying oh, no one no one around. is heroic at all it's brilliant. yeah and i think steve martin starts off like going oh, oh, like trying to stop himself from crying so he can like turn back around and at least acknowledge what they said but yeah maybe i should watch that film again because i just remember the, the high spots but i i do miss like really great physical comedy not self-aware um so Right then, so that's you done, is it? You've 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 sprayed your load of you, as Grease Two would say, yeah. in a chorus. Watched every film available. You, you shot your load, as Grease Two would say, in a chorus that cost someone tens of thousands of pounds to be paid to write. Well, I Grease Two's unambiguous choruses. Unambiguous <laughs> chorus. Um, are you are you are you free for two more? Yeah, please do. Cool. One of a two-minute earth, the other one's pretty much two-minute Um I watched Eye of the Tiger, mm. 1986 drama, action drama. Um, well, actually, I meant, I looked at this, and it stars Gary Boosie and Yafet Kotto. Richard C. Serafian uh, directed, if I just read out some of the stuff he's done, oh, actually, wow, okay. He did, so he did this, he did, uh, oh, that's, oh, that's his, oh, he, uh, directing, uh, Eye of the Tiger and nothing else. There we go. That took a while, didn't it? Oh, and Street yeah. Just Street Justice, which is probably another film we've seen, and he acted. Street Justice, bit. otherwise known as Jungle Justice. <laughs> Daddy, what did you do when you were younger? Well, I I, I put uh, I put out Justice in the streets and and the jungle. Oh, <laughs> did you have to get on a plane at all? Um. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, so I the Tiger, which is a song title that you may be familiar with, Rupert from Rocky Three. It's almost like the film is named after the song. Yeah, so I the Tiger by Survivor was written for Rocky Three, and you know it, it is the the theme of that. It kicks off this film as well. So yeah, uh, Gary Boosie is a character called Buck Matthews, who has been in prison for something we're not sure you know what it is, and he gets he leaves. And there's a kind of um, an Italian drug lord sort of character who insinuates that Gary Boosie has saved his life in prison multiple times and he'll give him anything. He gives him a number on a napkin and says, you need anything, you call me and I'll, I'll do whatever I can to help you. And Gary Boosie's like, yeah, cheers. Uh, what happens is Gary Boosie goes home and he's got a five-year-old daughter and a wife and they're so excited to see him. And one of the first things his wife says to him, <coughs> is this town has gone to hell and there's a motorcycle gang that is just ransacking things. You don't need to be here. 
that like the sheriff basically stitched you up so you went to prison for however many years there's nothing here for your daughter there's nothing here for me we're renting she specifies the renting so even the mortgage isn't even in question and says can we please just pack up and go somewhere else because this is just turning to an extremely dangerous place so as he's thinking about that as he's like taking stock and got his hands on his hips thinking lot to take him <laughs> Yafet Kotto walks in and says this place is a shithole by the way uh pops his head through the door and says this is uh and he actually he says one of the he's not in the film for very long Yafet Kotto but he has the best way of saying I'm moving I am that I've ever heard in a film where he says you know I'm not going to be around for much longer and Gary Boosie says oh are you moving? And he, he sort of rolls his eyes and says, well, let's just say that this town's about to lose its sexiest black man. <laughs> and I thought that's a hell of a way of saying you're shooting off. That is good work. Good work, Yafet. Um, and so everyone in the town is just saying, look, just, just go. Like, there's nothing here for you. This town ruined you. It took away from your family. Your family want you to leave. Your friends want you to leave. And, you, and, every, and the job he's got as a mechanic, he's like getting bullied by the local police on the local motorcycle game and he just says no i'm gonna stay yeah and and rupert that leads to problems so what happens is he is like a mechanic and he sees a woman getting thrown on the back of a motorbike and driven off to a quarry and he turns he turns up in his like tow truck sort of thing and there's a load of bikers revving their engines about this around this this in like i know the lights are pointing in a circle like a ring and there's a woman on the floor and the one of the members of the spy gang clearly going to sexually assault her. He's like pulling her clothes off and like laughing at her. And he and Gary Boosie pulls up. But if you can imagine this, if you're standing at a woman's feet that you're going to attack, and he's in a like a tow truck with a really low front bumper behind her, mm. and he's looking at this guy and revving his engine as if he's going to run him over. Isn't and it? I thought, well, you're gonna you're gonna run her over. Gonna kill her. She's yeah. in the middle. But the um. Luckily, the guy from the motorcycle gang who's a rapist doesn't seem to understand physics, so he sort of buckles himself up and and he and he like revs his engine on his bike like he's going to drive at the tow truck, and then from a hillside, someone turns up looking like Freddie Mercury with a shaved head, and everyone stops revving their engines, and he revs his en- he just looks at Gary Boosie, and revs his engines in a way that I assume is is like Morse code. Because it, it's a weird scene. That go, it's like, and then it kind of cuts to Gary Boosie looking out of his window, thinking, "What?" And um, and then all the bikers like react and they like do this big rev and they all go away. Like there's been a conversation, and this happens a couple of times in the film. And I thought, well, maybe that guy's mute and he just knows Morse code on his throttle. I don't know. Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, which is very specific when it's not explained to the audience. Um, so because he saved this woman, um, Yafet Kotto, who is part of the the police, come and say to him, "They're going to they're going to attack you." And they'll attack your family and they'll kill your family when you're not around to defend them. You need to go. And his wife hears this and says, can we go? Because I don't want that to happen. And he, and yeah, and Gary looks out at the moon and says, no, no, we'll stay. So what happens is it gets to like, like an irresponsible husband. 
it goes to like about two or three in the morning. Gary Gary comes down for like a sip of milk or something, and he, he hears finds Dennis Quaid squatting by in the fridge. <laughs> the fridge, and he's like, "What are you What are you doing here?" And um, and he hears loads of mo- motorbikes coming in the distance, and he instantly shouts upstairs to his wife, "All right, I've decided we we're going now." And uh, <laughs> I thought we left it a bit late there, Gaza. So. What happens is they attack the house and they murder his wife and they leave his his daughter in like a catatonic state, right. which he, which he gets over remarkably quickly, because as you know, Gary Boosie doesn't have expressions so much as a sneer that oscillates in intensity, yes, depending on camera setup and lighting. So he, he he's just he's just his wife's dead and he's like right now i'm definitely staying in this ruined house where my wife died and my, my child was and and it just goes on and on and on and effectively it leads up to him having a, a face-off with this biker who did the the kind of um morse code revving but when he comes to him face to face he can just talk and i thought well why didn't you just if you like <clears throat> speak earlier on instead of just revving which is really boring for an audience to have to sit through um you're revving and then everyone else replying through revs um so yeah he, and then it's just a, a typical load of old bollocks but yeah it just it was really building up to be something and and then and then, yeah, it, then it, it became nothing yeah because i was just thinking there's so many opportunities people are giving you to just like just leave just your your family is clearly under threat that's all you came out of prison for just leave I'm assuming you haven't seen this. No, I've not. And I can't. <laughs> Eye of the Tiger, Rupert, the song oh, yeah. that plays twice throughout the film. Um, and the last one I've got for for this episode, episode sixty six, is Studio Six Six Six, which is the comedy horror film made by the Foo Fighters last year. Mm-hmm. Um, our mutual friend Alex came over on Saturday to what to watch this we had a great day and we watched it almost in memory of taylor hawkins the drummer that passed away at the age of 50 years old last year which was just harsh mm. i i am not a fan of the food fighters beyond the first two possibly three albums but you know dave rolls in nirvana so we thought we'll we'll give the film a goosey and the problem is right this film is it it's effectively the food fighters moved to this haunted house where the previous band that recorded they were, were murdered in mysterious circumstances and Dave Grohl finds out that there's this kind of entity there that gives him songwriting prowess. So all these sort of spooky goings on are happening around him and he's getting more and more possessed. <laughs> um, but as the band are getting more and more frightened, he, he he's like coming up with more and more music. Mm. The problem with that is, <clears throat> I don't know if you've listened to the Foo Fighters music over the last 25 years, Rupert, but it's not very good. Um, more specifically, it's the kind of music that would play over like the intro to a early 2000s female-led team drama as the camera swoops over a campus and they introduce the characters. Yes. So what what the problem is with this is the first scene in the film where he, Dave Grohl's by himself up late at night trying to write songs. And there is an amusing cameo by um, Lionel Richie. He, he, he goes into the basement and presses play in a reel-to-reel. And this song plays that kind of um, propels the whole film that they try and finish this 45 minute song. But of course, the song that he plays for the first 30 seconds is really good. It's a really wonderfully produced, like double tracked, doomy 
um, bass-led riff, which is something yeah. the Foo Fighters have never written. So I'm there thinking, oh, wow, hopefully I get to hear this full song and, the, and this riff will go somewhere. But what happens is you hear snippets of the song throughout the film and they're trying to get the ending right, which is when everyone starts to get killed. The problem is Dave Grohl's kind of game. Taylor Hawkins is cool. And some bloke called Rami was apparently the keyboardist and is so good in this film as a comedic actor. I thought he was an inserted character, but he's actually the keyboardist as like this sort of horny keyboard player. But the uh, Pat Smear, uh, basically the two guitarists and the bassist, they, they cannot act and they just flatten the film. And it, it goes on and it's almost an hour and 45 and it's like a band in a house trying to record music while Dave Grohl gets more and more possessed. It needs more than this. You you need actors in this. Yeah. And, and there are flashes of kind of fun. And then as the film went on and, I, and by the end of it, I thought, right, this is feeling long now. When it mm. ended over the credits, they started playing this full song, which is supposedly 45 minutes. And what happens is the first 30 seconds of this amazing doom riff and then it just goes into typical Foo Fighters complete shit. So it's like, but you've acknowledged in this film, this is the song that's great. This is what's going to win people back. This is the, the, so you've, you've acknowledged this is a good riff. And then you've also pushed that to one side in the credit sequence where you just, you do that for 30 seconds and then all of a sudden it's just Foo Fighter pap. And Mm. And I said after it finished, I looked to Alex and said, maybe that would... I said, I kind of enjoyed that because it was silly. And I, I've got the goodwill towards Dave Grohl from his Nirvana days and um, uh, Taylor Hawkins because he was a great drummer and he's passed away, sadly. And he said, I don't think Foo Fighter fans would like it because it's bad. <laughs> um, be, because it, it it's nothing really to do with a band. It's more of a vanity project. And I yes. thought... Oh, okay, that's a different take on it. Because I thought, well, I kind of had fun with it, but maybe it's just because I've had a few drinks and I'm with a good friend and I'm in a lazy state of mind. But it does, what it did to me was just accent how bad the Foo Fighters music is. (laughs) It sounds quite counterproductive then. If it's some vanity project, actually it just highlights their shortcomings. I will say that like the... There were some nice kind of subtle scares and Dave Grohl and like I said, Taylor Hawkins are bang up for it. And Rami, the keyboard player is a great comedic actor, but it's not enough for a full film. And, and also the, the, the gore sequences, whilst they're quite bloodthirsty are very CG based. So Ooh. there's just that like weightlessness about them. No, that's not, that's not good. So I don't know who this film will sit with. And that is everything for this episode, Rupert. That is everything, isn't it? Yeah. Let's consider what our films of the week are. Are then. I'm looking at mine now. I'm just thinking. Yes. I don't like to choose kids' films as films of the week because I feel like I I sit through those, you know, not out of my own choice. It's not Grease Two. I really loved Glass Onion. I did really like the Glass Onion. I I had fun with the net. I would. It's probably going to be Glass. I mean, I did watch Die Hard, but I didn't even bring that up because it's just a great film. Yeah, I watched that as well. I think the one that I enjoyed the most was was Glass Onion. Yeah, yeah and I was that mystery. Yeah, no, I had really good fun with that. Like, and I felt like it was wholesome family fun. And I can imagine it's a film I watch in the future again. So, Glass yeah. Onion. 
I would say for me, it's got to be next of kin or let him go. But next of kin was a strong starter from you. It was a strong starter, and I think possibly it's the sort of underdog in this fight because it could very easily get lost amongst the horror twaddle on Prime. So I think I'd recommend next of kin. It's a subtle psychological horror from well a bit of a mini golden age of australian cinema so 82 and um although let him go was very good as well but i get that is a bit more high profile and will be around for longer it's less likely to disappear especially in the case of let him go with the popularity of yellowstone because which is of course also set in the montana region so and also has kevin costner so um yeah, I think I'll go with Next of Kin on Prime. So Next of Kin and Glass Onion. And mm-hmm. uh, can, can I leave the uh, the next episodes of Arkin's Star in your capable hands? Yeah, I haven't really thought about this one, but... Shall, shall I choose one and you choose one? Yeah, let's do it that way. Are we going um, to... What do you reckon? Sandra Bullock or Michelle Pfeiffer? Uh, Pfeiffer. I think. But okay, so Michelle Pfeiffer two. Michelle Pfeiffer two. <laughs> I was about to say Art Malik, but I think that would just be cruel. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer two. Uh, Bill Paxton. <sighs> Can I put a veto on that? Uh, I think the your, I think that's. I think it's too close, general. I think our I, I think our fans are getting wise, and I, I think, think that would yeah. Oh, you want I something mean, harder? Yeah, yeah. I I, I think. We okay, need okay. Uh, you, you made me say it. It's Art Malik then. It's Michelle <laughs> to Art Malik. Good. You asked for it. Because the thing is, I mean, Bill Paxton and Art Malik are in the same film, so but I just feel like it, it, it's just that is um, true. Yeah, the thing is, I, I'm I've become because I'm not very good at Arkansas by any means. Because I tried to do one when it was um, Stephen Lang, Sean Harris, I was fucking determined to mention Krull, but <laughs> and I think I might, I, might, I might do it, I might do it for my, my, own, my own amusement. But when you get, I realize now that. You know, because people tend to email, email me their responses. You get the the franchises, and I like how lazy people are with like the, oh, one of the Mission Impossible's or one of the Marvels, whatever. Um, and I think Bill Paxton is a franchisee with Alien and all that sort of stuff. So I I just think yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer's in Batman, so I feel like there's enough franchise action there mm-hmm. to okay. to feed people. So Michelle Pfeiffer to Aunt Malik. I love this podcast, by the way. Love doing it. And sometimes when I sometimes when I'm watching a film. And I'm just thinking, I could just turn this off and do something I enjoy. <laughs> Such as when I watch a Grease 2 or Street Law slash Jungle Law. Yeah, it it's is. like you can always feel, like even if you're watching something totally unenjoyable, you're actually sacrificing your precious time for. Yeah. And yet, you know there's value in it because there's yeah. something to talk about. It's-